0: Good morning, everyone. We are so glad you are with us on this Morning. It's like we morning. on TV
1: that like came. I thought like so too, really, but really yes, fast. we're here. And here are like the
0: <laughs> here are the five things. Welcome to you. back, by the way. Thank you. I feel so much better. I love kids, but
1: yeah, well. Thanks that's for the what strip, kiddos. <laughs>
0: thanks for the strip. All better. Thank you, modern medicine. Anyways, here are the five things you need to know for Wednesday, March 22nd. Former President Donald Trump facing two intensifying investigations overnight. We learned that the special counsel in the classified documents probe has evidence to suggest that Trump used his attorney to further a crime. This marks the first time that the Justice Department is arguing it has evidence that Trump may have committed a crime. And here in New York, the grand jury in the hush money case is set to reconvene today ahead of a potential vote to indict Trump.
1: Also today, all eyes on the Federal Reserve. The chairman Jerome Powell set to announce a critical decision on whether to raise interest rates once again. The Fed having to weigh the fight against inflation with the recent banking crisis and a new twist related to the Murdoch family. State investigators in South Carolina say that 2015 death of Stephen Smith near the Murdoch estate is now being looked at as a homicide. No member of the Murdoch family is considered a suspect in this.
2: Also, Gwyneth Paltrow in court after she is being sued over a 2016 ski accident in Utah. An optometrist accuses her of skiing, a skiing hit and run on the slopes, but the actress claims it's actually the other way around that she's the one who was hit. Also, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis going on offense, hitting Trump's character and his leadership skills ahead of an expected 2024 fight. And when it comes to that desanctimonious nickname, Florida Governor says you can call him whatever you want as long as you call him a winner.
0: We do begin this hour with two major developments in two different investigations into former president trump first a special counsel's probe of those classified documents found at mar-a-lago we have now learned that a federal judge is convinced that donald trump may have used one of his own defense attorneys to break the law when federal agents were trying to retrieve those top secret files stored at mar-a-lago in florida so this means the attorney may need to testify again and answer questions that he previously refused to answer by claiming attorney-client privilege. Trump has not been charged in the documents case, but this may prove significant in the obstruction probe being pursued by special counsel Jack Smith. So this all comes as Trump prepares for possible indictment in a separate case here in New York, in the Stormy Daniels Hush Money case. The grand jury is set to reconvene on that today. We're waiting to see if they will decide to indict and pursue criminal charges. They're two different things, but two huge developments overnight. We're going to break it all down straight to the big news in the Trump classified documents case. A key deadline passed just moments ago at the top of the hour. Caitlin, this is extraordinary in so many ways. Can you walk through your reporting?
2: Yeah, and there have been deadlines that we've just hit, one that happened at midnight for the Trump team, one that just happened a few minutes ago at 6 a.m. for the Justice Department. Our colleague, Caitlin Poland said they did meet both of those deadlines. And there are a lot of investigations happening here. So to be clear, there are several going on surrounding the former president. Right now, what we are talking about is the classified documents probe. This is the special counsel's investigation into the documents that Trump took with him when he left office This is the latest that is what's happening. At midnight, there was a deadline for Trump's attorneys who are seeking an emergency intervention. Basically, they don't want his defense attorney, Evan Corcoran, to have to go testify again before the grand jury without being able to cite attorney-client privilege, which he did previously, declining to answer some of their questions. What we were told was the 6 a.m. deadline was for the Justice Department to respond to what the Trump team had in by midnight. So we are told both of these deadlines have been met. Now, it all depends on the DC Circuit Court. They will be making the ultimate decision here. If they do not step in, if we do not hear from him, we could see Evan Corcoran, Trump's defense attorney, having to go before the grand jury and testify again, this time without that protection of attorney client privilege. It would be a monumental ruling here. And the reason this matters is because for the first time, we are getting the clearest view yet that the judge is agreeing with prosecutors here, the judge who ruled on Friday that Trump may have used Evan Corcoran, this attorney, in furtherance of a crime. Before, it was a little ambiguous, whether it was Trump or Corcoran, who they believed and they were alleging may have committed a crime here or used them in furtherance of a crime. Now it's making clear they believe it's the former president. They, The judge on Friday believes the prosecutors met that burden, that threshold to have him come in and in this remarkable testimony not be able to use attorney-client privilege. But now it is up to the D.C. Circuit Court to make the ultimate decision, because the Trump team has gone to them. We also know the Justice Department is saying they have evidence to back up this decision. We know they have surveillance videos from Mar-a-Lago. That could be part of what's happening here, those surveillance videos of the rooms where the documents were kept. And that is a big aspect here. The reason, you know, and what this all means is that attorney-client privilege may not apply. The DOJ still wants to talk to Trump, uh, Trump's attorney, Evan Corcoran, and Jennifer Little. But the focus here has really been... On Evan Corcoran. And the testimony of this could be critical here. So we are waiting ultimately just to see what the DC Circuit Court decides. If they do decide that Evan Corcoran should go and testify without attorney client privilege, it would be one of the biggest rulings we've probably ever had in this nation.
1: So, Caitlin, to clarify, it has been filed, but we don't know yet what's in the filing,
0: correct?
2: Essentially, what we we don't know, because all this is under seal, which means we're learning a lot of this from what's being posted on the docket and what we're hearing from our sources with, with understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. And so we're waiting to see what they filed overnight. We believe it was just really more of an explanation of their opinions. But this all happened very quickly. I think we found out about these deadlines around 8 or 9 p.m. last night. That's not a lot of time for either the Trump team to file, or the Justice Department to have that 6 a.m. deadline. So really, everyone is waiting to see what this decision is going to look like.
1: Yeah, and specifically, this is the classified documents case. We have two other cases that we're following. Actually, three because there's the Jean Carroll, there's the Just- Georgia, yeah, there's a Georgia um, Attorney General, and then of course the Manhattan DA. Yeah. which we're going to get to.
2: You could forgive um, people for being confused. Yeah,
1: confused. But thanks for laying that out, the Georgia District Attorney. Um, so we're going to check all of it out. We're going to turn now to the... Thank you, Caitlin. We'll check back uh, with more of your reporting. Turning now to the exclusive CNN reporting on the Hush Money case here in Manhattan Mm -hmm. that we just spoke of. We're learning that emails between Stormy Daniels and one of Trump's lawyers have been turned over to the district attorney. Now, The communications apparently date back to 2018 when Daniels was looking for an attorney to represent her. uh, And Daniels' lawyer claims that disclosed confidential information to Joe Tacopina who would later become Trump's lawyer, right? Well, Tacapino denies that there is a conflict or that confidential information was shared with his office. And he says he neither met nor spoke to Daniels. But I want you to listen. This is what he told me back in 2018.
3: And I can't really talk about my impressions or any conversations we had because there was an attorney-client privilege that attached even to a consultation.
1: He went on to explain, but Kristen Holmes broke this story for us. Kristen, that was the first time that he talked about it, part of the evidence in this case. Kristen joins us now from West Palm Beach, Florida, near Mar-a-Lago. Good morning to you. What does this mean for the case and now for Joe Tacapina?
4: Good morning, Don. Well... The big question here is what a judge will decide to do, because that's who it's ultimately up to, whether or not this rises to a conflict of interest that would require some sort of limitation on Takapina's role or even disqualification from representing Trump. And the big question, as you said, was whether or not Daniel shared confidential information that could be used in this case and used against her. If this were to go to trial, could any information that was given to Takapina to his law firm be used against her in a cross-examination, for example, would it give Takapina and Trump a leg up? Now, talking to Stormy Daniels' current attorney, Clark Brewster, he believes that there is confidential information that was shared between Daniels and Takapina and his law firm. And he at least believes that it rises to the level of needing to be reviewed. And as you said, Takapina says that there was no wrongdoing. There's no conflict of interest. But again, Pointing to your own interview with him in 2018 when he suggests that there was an attorney-client privilege established between he and Daniel, suggesting that he had had some sort of interaction with her, all of this raising a giant question mark right now. And again, it'll be up to a judge to decide what level this rises to.
1: Beyond the airplane taking off or landing uh, behind you, I understand that you have some new reporting of what's going on behind the scenes at Mar-a-Lago ahead of a potential indictment. What are you learning?
4: Well, right now, Trump and his team are essentially just preparing for this indictment. Yes, it has not come down yet, but they are resigned to the fact that this is going to happen. I think what was interesting to me is for the last several days, we've heard Republicans rallying around Trump. We've heard this spin from Republicans saying that this is going to help Trump politically. And while his team does believe that this is going to give a boost in the polls, particularly in their contested primary, a lot of them were much more subdued and a lot more or a lot less adamant about how helpful this really was. There was a lot of questions about what this would do long term. They are now operating in uncharted territory. So they're trying to plan a campaign, trying to run Trump as a 2024 candidate under this looming indictment and under the possibility that he will actually be indicted and be a candidate. And one thing to keep in mind is they already have a big rally, Trump's first big rally planned for Saturday in Waco, Texas. It's a campaign rally. And I had one advisor tell me, so what do we do if he Gets indicted on a Friday, do we just go to Texas the next day? So, this is the new normal, and they're trying to figure out how to actually work within this. Again, resigning themselves to the fact that they believe this is going to happen.
1: All right, Kristen Holmes in a very noisy and windy West Palm Beach this morning. Thank you. Yes, yeah,
4: but with really fascinating yeah.
0: reporting, both hers yours, Caitlin. I, mean, I cannot believe what happened from just 8 p.m. last night.
2: Yeah. How much it was like developed. rapid fire. It, it's, it's truly was. amazing.
1: But also, I mean, think about the weekend. Right. What happened over the weekend? It was rapid fire over the weekend. And then it slowed for yeah. just a moment. Right. Waiting for what Trump said would be Tuesday. And then now all this reporting that you have, I mean, it's like,
2: I know. Imagine being that legal team. <laughs> no, I mean, they're dealing no with these 100%. filings. They're waiting to see the other attorneys who are working on the Manhattan case, but it's still all in the same realm. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And then we don't forget the Eugene Carroll. They merged the two cases of mm-hmm. defamation and, and, you know, allegations of rape as well. So there's a lot going on.
0: There's a lot going on. Also, there's a lot going on with the economy. The Fed has a huge decision to make today in this war on inflation. And what does it mean for the banking system this afternoon? Fed Chair Jay Powell will announce the Fed's decision on interest rates. What are they going to do? Will they hike them once again? Perhaps take a pause. The only clear consensus seems to be that the Fed has an impossible job. Inflation is rampant, serious threat to the economy. But the Fed is also trying to navigate a soft landing, avoid a recession. And now, oh, yes, all the turbulence in the banking system. Chief Business Correspondent Christine Romans is here with more.
5: Other than that, everything's great. It's all fine. Yeah. (laughs) What do they do? So they either pause, they raise interest rates 25 basis points, or they say, look, we're really serious about inflation and we think the banking system is very strong and they hike 50 basis points.
0: That's what Europe did.
5: Europe did 50 basis points because Christine Lagarde, and she was speaking this morning again and saying... We have an inflation fight on our hands and we are are, are dedicated to getting inflation down because longer term, that is a real problem. And our banks are strong. Uh, most people think the Fed's going to go 25 basis points. I think if you look at uh, I think 88 percent almost is what the, the, the guessing is in the Fed funds futures markets. So they're looking for 25 basis points. That's what the market is is expecting here. What
0: is the significance of Janet Yellen yesterday speaking to the American Bankers Association? This was after her testimony. Right. Um, saying we, the government, I'm paraphrasing here, needed to intervene to to protect the depositors of these two collapsed banks. And by the way, we might do it again.
5: If we need to, we will do more, she told. um, She told the banking industry. And I think that really helped calm some nerves. You've been hearing all the right things from uh, regulators and from financial uh, chiefs around the world. And so that's why I think you had banking stocks rally yesterday and the overall market rally yesterday um, the overall market saying we don't see a widespread banking crisis here. We think that regulators have it under control, and she's not explicitly guaranteeing deposits at some point. Congress needs to figure out if they want to do that, but if another small bank were to were to fail, she would make sure depositors are made hold
1: yeah, really does that have the medicine does that work? i mean twenty five you know you give you take half the medicine, do you give your kid half the medicine. Do you, if you give the economy half the medicine. Yeah, or, does it do anything? Does it really do anything? I mean, two
5: weeks ago, we thought it would be 50 basis points. Since right. the Fed last met, you guys, all of the data has been strong, showing a strong economy, showing inflation still there. You know, so everything has been so strong. We have seen where the Fed's interest rates have been working in the housing market. Really? Home prices yeah. for the first time in a decade fell. Oh, wow. I can't believe for a decade I have not been able to say home prices fell. I mean, home prices That's fell. Good. Uh, A little bit. And that shows you where that tough medicine from the Fed has been working through. That chart shows you home prices falling. Now, regionally, you still have uh, prices up, I think, in the Midwest and in the South. The Northeast and the West is where prices really kind of fell year over year because those have been really high, high price markets. Right. Um, And the the chief economist there at the National Association of Realtors says this isn't the bottom. Prices will probably keep falling um, because you have all that. Fed Medicine, working in the housing market.
0: So glad I just bought a home.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, did you get a low rate? No. (laughs) Oh, Poppy.
0: Oh, thanks, (laughs) Roman. Well,
2: those of us who don't even own homes, okay? Yeah, all right, fine, fair. (laughs) Fair, fair, fair. Thank
0: you, Roman. You're welcome.
2: All right, we'll wait to see what they decide. Also this morning, attorneys for Fox News and Dominion Voting Systems are going to be back in court. They are going to continue their face-off over the lawsuit that Dominion has filed with a $1.6 billion tagline, the judge in the case peppered Fox attorneys with tough questions about the network's embrace of lies and conspiracy theories following the 2020 presidential election. So joining us now is Sarah Fisher, senior media analyst and senior media reporter at Axios. Sarah, I mean, the hearing went very long yesterday. We know it's going to pick up again in just a few hours. If you weren't watching yesterday as this was going
6: on, what were the biggest takeaways? Yeah, Caitlin, I think the biggest takeaway was that the judge seemed pretty skeptical of Fox's defense, arguing you can't claim neutral reporting privilege and at the same time knowingly put guests on your air that are – putting out baseless claims. Now, the judge also said that he's not going to rule from the bench, so we should expect some sort of written decision. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to side either way. And if he doesn't, of course, Caitlin, the next step would be that we see these two uh, sides, Dominion and Fox, square off in court on April 17th. Of course, there is a chance that they could settle before then. But at this point, so much has come out on both sides that there's not really much incentive unless one party believes strongly or another. That they could get a smaller uh, lawsuit or a better, more favorable. Uh, amount you mentioned 1.6 billion dollars. That's a pretty hefty price tag, especially considering the fact that the minion's not that big. You know, I think it's about 100 million or so in revenue every year.
1: Yeah, we're talking about summary judgment, which means that the case would be decided before it would uh, go to court. But listen, we were talking about all the cases involving Donald Trump. This one also involves Donald Trump because it has to do with his election lies about you know winning that, he's saying that he won the 2020 election. Let's talk a little bit more about the judge, what the judges th- possibly thinking here. He, the judge overseeing. The case, hit Fox's lawyers with a lot of tough questions yesterday about the network's embrace of election denialism in 2020, at one point even suggesting that it could have been, and I quote here, a bigger story that a president who lost an election was making all these unsubstantiated false allegations. What do you glean from the judge's thought process based on that line of questioning?
6: You know, I think he's basically implied that Fox's defense is intellectually dishonest. You know, how can you argue that you should be covered by neutral reportage, that you should be uh, protected here, and at the same time, there's been so much proof that's come out that Fox's uh, personalities and leadership knew that what they were putting on air was false, and they knew that the guests that they were having on air that was supporting some of these claims. We're not spewing the truth. And in fact, in a lot of the things that have come out in the recent weeks with some of these defamation suit uh, depositions has been that the hosts have called these allegations crazy and nonsensical. And so I think the judge is really skeptical of Fox here. It doesn't necessarily mean he's going to side with Fox, but I think it makes it a lot harder to, you know, imagine Fox getting a win before this thing goes to trial.
1: Yeah, the hosts are calling what Trump was alleging, Trump and his acolytes, what they're alleging, saying that it was nonsensical and they didn't believe it. But that's not exactly what they were portraying on the air. But right? if this
0: goes to trial, right, if Dominion isn't, doesn't settle, Dominion wants Rupert Murdoch and CEO Lachlan Murdoch on the stand. Yeah. Which will be fascinating. Yeah,
6: it'll be remarkable.
2: It'll be another yeah, show. Yeah, but
6: you know, we've, we've, yeah. we've seen some of the depositions uncovered already. And uh-huh. so the, the question is, what would be new here? I'm not sure that it can get more explosive than it's already been. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair.
1: Yeah, but it'll be interesting to see those they, folks yeah. on the stand, right, and to hear from them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Sarah Fisher, thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks. you. So Patriot
1: Missile Defense System set to arrive in Ukraine much sooner than expected. CNN got an inside look at Ukrainian soldiers training for 10 weeks. We're live at Fort Sill,
7: Oklahoma.
2: And quote, nobody likes Mike Pence. That is the headline of one article after a reporter spoke with Republican voters in one focus group. They had a blistering assessment of the former vice president. We'll tell you what they said and also how Pence's team is pushing back. More CNN This Morning to come after the
8: break.
1: Here's what the Pentagon is saying, that the U.S. will be sending Patriot missile defense systems and Abrams tanks to Ukraine much sooner than expected. Ukrainian soldiers have been training intensively on the systems here in the U.S. at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Now, officials are saying that the Ukrainians have excelled and the system is set to be deployed in the coming weeks. We turn now to CNN's Natasha Bertrand joins us live from Fort Sill. Good morning to you. This is a welcome, this is welcome news, I should say, for Ukraine. What are you hearing from the White House this morning?
9: Yeah, well, the White House is acknowledging, as of yesterday, that they have wanted to ramp up this Patriot defense training and that it has been expedited, essentially because the Ukrainians have just proven so good at it. So they are set to receive those Patriot systems in the coming weeks, likely in time for that looming Ukrainian counteroffensive. The United States fast-tracking key weapons for Ukraine's fight against Russia. Heavy U.S. tanks now set to be deployed to the country faster than originally planned.
10: DOD, in close coordination with Ukraine, has made the decision to provide the M1A1 variant of the Abrams tank, which will enable us to significantly expedite delivery timelines and deliver this important capability to Ukraine by the fall of this year.
9: Patriot missile defense systems also due to arrive in Ukraine in the coming weeks, defense officials told CNN, much sooner than anticipated.
11: They're wrapping up training on uh, things like the Patriot air defense uh, system. I mean, we're doing everything we can to make sure that they're ready as best they can be for these uh, critical weeks and months ahead.
5: CNN
9: was invited to observe the Patriot training here in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where 65 Ukrainian soldiers ages 19 to 67 have been undergoing an intensive 10-week training course on the Patriot systems. Here you can see behind 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 me a decommissioned system much like the one the Ukrainians will be using once they get back to their home country.
12: Our assessment is that the Ukrainian soldiers are impressive and absolutely a quick study due to their extensive air defense knowledge and experience in a combat zone. It was easier, though never easy, for them to grasp the Patriot system operations and maintenance concepts.
9: But the stakes are so high that CNN was not allowed to film or photograph the training, an effort to protect the Ukrainians who will be back on the front lines in just a matter of weeks and to shield the U.S. from blowback from Moscow. U.S. officials emphasizing that the Patriots are purely defensive and not a threat to Russia.
13: It's a point defense system. It's got to be placed in a location uh, that is defending a target like uh, uh, a capital city, Kiev, or a port city like Odessa. So it, this is not a weapon system that can be moved around on the battlefield based on changing threats.
9: The systems will, however, help defend Ukraine against near-daily missile barrages by Russia, and will now likely be on the battlefield in time to support a looming Ukrainian counteroffensive.
7: What did Zelensky say uh, when I met him in Kiev? He said, help us win quickly. It's exactly what he said uh, when he visited uh, Uh, Washington, D.C., recently, and is even what Secretary Austin said. Uh, He said, uh, Ukraine doesn't have time. The spring offensive is coming.
9: So, Don, the Ukrainians have acknowledged that what they have right now, the air defense systems that they currently employ against the Russian missile barrages, they are not enough to prevent against a Russian ballistic missile attack, for example. And it is unclear uh, whether the patriots that they're set to receive can protect against a hypersonic missile attack from Russia. But they all acknowledge that this patriot system is really going to be a game changer once they do receive it in the next coming weeks. Don.
1: All right. Natasha Bertrand, thank you this morning. Straight ahead here on CNN this morning, we're going to speak with former Defense Secretary Mark Esper.
0: A huge development in the case of Stephen Smith. Authorities are now ruling his death a homicide nearly eight years after he was found dead near the home of Alex Murdoch.
2: Both stay on top of that. Also coming out of Florida, there's news. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is now weighing in on the Trump nickname he likes best.
3: What um, is your favorite nickname that Trump's given you so far? Is it Ron Ron the Sanctimonious or Meatball Ron?
2: <laughs> Rather be called instead. That's next.
0: This morning, the death of a 19-year-old whose body was found near the home of convicted murderer Alex Murdoch is now, that death is now being treated as a homicide. The autopsy performed the day Stephen Smith died in 2015 ruled that he had been the victim of a hit and run. But now officials are reopening the case because of new evidence they say they discovered during Murdoch's double murder investigation. Our Diane Gallagher is live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Reading about this this morning, I was just Floored because frankly, I didn't know a lot about the case prior. I don't think a lot of people did, but now, because of the Murdoch trial and investigation, they're reopening this.
14: Uh, So they did open this case, a state investigation, back in June of 2021, Uh, back in 2015, July of 2015, Stephen Smith, a 19-year-old nursing student, uh, was killed. As you said, he was originally ruled to have died from blunt force head trauma as the result of a hit and run. But we've looked at investigative files from the highway patrol back from 2015, and even then investigators said that there was no evidence that Stephen Smith had been hit by By a car, saying that there was no vehicle debris, the injuries on his body were not consistent with that, and even that his shoes were still on his feet, loosely tied. Uh, But it became a cold case. And then in June 2021, state law enforcement division investigators announced that they were opening a death investigation. Into Stephen Smith's death because of information gathered during the course of the investigation into the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch, who, of course, Alec Murdoch was convicted of killing earlier this month. Now, uh, state investigators have never said what that information they gathered was, but they made a phone call. The chief of SLED called an attorney who had just been retained by Stephen Smith's mother this week, yesterday, and he said that they were looking looking into this as a homicide, and that they were working toward trying to solve Stephen Smith's death.
0: Can you help us understand, Diane, um, any connection to the Murdoch family? Obviously, Buster Murdoch, the son's name, has been brought up. He put out a forceful statement saying basically, leave me out of this, leave my family alone. There's no evidence. Is there any evidence to even tie him to this?
14: So uh, there's the obvious portion here, which is that the state law enforcement division opened their case up because of new information gathered during the course of the investigation into the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. So that is the only official tie here. But going back to 2015, In those Highway Patrol interviews, they mentioned Buster Murdoch's name. They mentioned the Murdoch's dozens of times when they spoke with witnesses. Buster did deny this this week, saying he's been busy grieving his mother and his brother, but he said it has gone on far too long. These baseless rumors of my involvement with Stephen and his death are false. I unequivocally deny any involvement in his death and my heart goes out to the Smith family. There has been no actual official connection between the Murdoch family or Buster Murdoch and Stephen Smith's death. No suspects have been named,
0: Poppy. Okay, Diane Gallagher, thank you for that reporting.
2: Wall Street farms are buying up lots of drought-stricken farmland out west. How water is actually making these companies millions.
1: And actress Gwyneth Paltrow in court over a dangerous 2016 ski accident she was involved in, the he said, she said allegations about what happened on the slopes straight ahead.
2: All right, welcome back. Today is World Water Day, and Wall Street companies are making big investments in the driest land that they can find in the U.S., and neighboring farmers are outraged about it. They say that many of these private investors are seeking to take advantage of the coveted water rights that come with these patches of farmland, but using them as a way to make millions when scarcity and drought sends water prices skyrocketing. CNN's Lucy Kavanaugh has more.
15: Cibola, Arizona is a place few are likely to have heard of. Home to some 300 people, this windswept community is a tiny oasis in the Sonoran Desert sustained by water from the Colorado River. But this rural corner of the American West has caught the eye of East Coast investors. Much of this farmland now belongs to Greenstone, a subsidiary of the financial services conglomerate Mass Mutual. So what does investment firm want with farmland like this?
16: Um, They want it for the water. They want it to make money, you know, off the uh, water rights that are uh, attached to the land.
15: La Paz County Supervisor Holly Irwin is fighting Greenstone's recent sale of Cibola water to a growing Phoenix suburb more than 200 miles away and make millions off of it. You know,
16: at the expense of what it's going to do to our communities in the future and the precedents it's going to set. It's opening Pandora's box and who is going to be the next one in line to roll the dice. A
15: lawyer for Greenstone told CNN its plan was subject to public review, approved and that it will have no impact on the potential of cities along the river to grow. But it's not just happening in Arizona. Wall Street firms have been snapping up properties up and down the Colorado River, not so much for the land, but rather for its precious water rights. It's a growing interest in an increasingly scarce natural resource, with investors betting big on a major
9: payoff. It's a trillion-dollar market opportunity.
15: Matt Desirio is president of Water Asset Management, an investment firm headquartered in this New York City building, which has also been buying water rights in states along the Colorado River. Desirio described its strategy in 2020 interviews with Institutional Real Estate and Fintech TV.
3: Water, we believe, is the resource that is defining the 21st century, much like Oil defined the last century.
15: The company did not respond to CNN's specific inquiries, issuing a statement that said it was proud of its investments and will manage assets in a manner that contributes to solutions to water scarcity.
1: They come out west, they purchase and pick up cheap rural agricultural land, they sit on it for a little while and then they're trying to sell the water.
15: Mojave County Commissioner Travis Lingenfelter says a number of large East Coast investment firms are trying to get in on the action. His is one of three Arizona counties that sued the federal government to block the Cibola water transfer.
1: If they're coming after a portion of our only water supply on the river for many of our communities, we have to fight it.
11: They're drought profiteers. They're trying to suck the very lifeblood out of these communities for their own financial benefit.
15: Andy Mueller is tasked with helping to protect Colorado's share of the river and says the full scale of the land purchases is difficult to track because investment firms use different names to disguise ownership.
11: It's a very unpopular move to come from New York and invest in real estate and in irrigated agriculture with the intent to dry it up and, and watch it blow away. It's all about making money. Under a pilot program,
15: Program, the federal government has dedicated $125 million in drought relief funds to pay Colorado River farmers and ranchers to conserve water by not growing crops on their land something former state senator Kerry Donovan worries investment firms will take advantage of.
17: That's where I think we start to see this investment speculation, these outside landholders get big dollars to grow nothing. And that's when we start to see farm and ranchers go away. Her efforts to strengthen the state's anti-speculation laws failed, leaving her and
15: other ranchers worried about how Wall Street will influence their future.
17: It's not their land. It's not their legacy. It's their bottom line. And they're, by law, they're responsible to make money for their clients. My family's brand is on the barn behind me. This is my family's land. It's our legacy. We work to keep it this way. That's a totally different mentality than a New York investment firm. Lucy Kaffin of CNN, Western Colorado. Thanks to Lucy for that great
1: piece. Fascinating.
18: Yeah, really
1: yeah. He's alienated every Republican and Democrat. It's over. That is a direct quote out of a Republican focus group talking about Former Vice President Mike Pence. We're going to tell you what else was said and how the Pence team is firing
3: back.
19: I've received a lot of encouragement around the country from people that that see our particular style of leadership, and and uh, we're gonna we're gonna continue to reflect very deeply on entering that national.
2: That's former Vice President Mike Pence yesterday teasing a potential presidential run, suggesting that Republican voters want to see him run for president in 2024. We should note that comes along a Monmouth University survey that showed Pence's likability among GOP voters slipped over the last month, down from 55 percent in February 2023 to 42 percent in March. And according to our next guest, a focus group of Republican voters also had some harsh words for the former vice president, Their views are part of this Atlantic story. The headline is, quote, nobody likes Mike Pence. One voter of the 34 that were surveyed commenting, I don't care for him. He's just middle of the road to me. If there was someone halfway better, I would not vote for him. And, quote, he's only going to get the vote from his family. And I'm not even sure... If they like him Oof. in a statement to CNN, a spokesperson for Pence pushed back heavily on the story. And those harsh quotes, there saying, quote, Mike Pence has spent the last two years traveling to more than 30 states, campaigning for dozens of candidates and listening to potential voters. Those interactions have been incredibly positive and encouraging. And we place more value in those experience than a focus group conducted by disgruntled former Republicans paid for by an anti-Republican group and essentially leaked to the Atlantic, which recently declared that the GOP is just obnoxious. Do people even try to hide their ulterior motives anymore? Once again, that is a statement coming from Pence's team. I'll say, joining us now is McKay Coppins, who is the staff writer for the Atlantic, who observed the focus group, has these quotes, experienced these voters. And McKay, I just want to note quickly because of what's alluded to in that statement there. Um, the focus groups and the cost of them are split between the Bulwark and the Republican Accountability Project. Those are two anti-Trump organizations that she's affiliated with. You note that in your story. So you do uh, put all that background there. But let's just start with what you saw, what you heard from these from these Republican voters.
18: Yeah, it was really interesting. You know, the Republicans that I I listened to, and it was actually several focus groups, um, they they all rejected the idea of a Mike Pence uh, candidacy, with a couple exceptions, and for all different reasons. So strong Trump supporters uh, were alienated by Pence because of his refusal to obstruct the certification of the electoral votes on January 6th. Less Trump-inclined Republicans said that they uh, felt Pence was tarnished by his time in the administration, all of the Republicans suggested in one way or another that they felt Pence was weak or lacked conviction. And just to give you one data point, of the 34 Republicans across four focus groups that I heard discuss Pence's prospective candidacy, only four said they would even consider Pence as president. And two of them immediately started to backpedal after initially indicating interest.
1: That you sort of answered the next question that I had, McKay, and that is the Trump administration or if the affiliation with Trump has damaged him mm-hmm. and being with the administration being, you know, uh, a, a loyal soldier, but then at the end, not doing what Trump wanted him to do and overturn the election, it is hurting him in, on, on two different fronts. It's, it's, it's a tough thing for him to have to navigate.
18: Yeah, that's right. And a number of voters pointed this out. They said, look, whatever you think of Trump, uh, nobody that I know likes Mike Pence <laughs> that, <They>, you know, <laughs> what one voter actually said he has no constituency. It's over its retirement time. And, and I think that reflected kind of the consensus view of him. Mm-hmm. What was especially interesting is there was one group I, I listened to was uh, consisted entirely of e- conservative evangelical Christians who presumably might like Mike Pence's persona, which is rooted <sighs> in the religious right. Even all of them rejected Pence as a prospective candidate That's saying that either that that he was too weak or that he was, uh, you know, n- not a fighter. And uh-huh. in, in many cases, they noted that he was a nice guy, strong, you know, an honest, decent guy in their view, but that that didn't make him necessarily a good presidential candidate.
0: Honest, decent guy doesn't make a good presidential candidate. That's really telling in and of itself. What I found so fascinating, because you've been following him since you profiled him in 2017, is that you talked to voters all across the country. So this was not just one sort of geographical location. You went from suburban Atlanta to rural Illinois to San Diego. And I wonder, to Don's great point, is it sort of that people that you heard from these focus groups, Republican voters, feel like... He's trying to have it both ways, and you just can't have it both ways. You're either in Trump's camp or you're out, but he's kind of both, depending on what you ask him about, the former I think president. That,
18: I think that's right. I think this was the fundamental miscalculation that Mike Pence made, right? He thought that by being incredibly loyal, incredibly willing to... Uh, Cover for Trump to defend Trump to uh, offer fawning praise of Trump throughout his presidency. He would win goodwill with the Trump base, and then on January sixth. And you know, to his credit, I won't try to read into his motives. Uh, It's possible that he genuinely thought he was doing the right thing by breaking with Trump on January sixth. But he did it so late that he didn't win that much credit from the less MAGA inclined Republicans either. And so (laughs) I think all of these Republicans, regardless of where they are on the the ideological spectrum or where they are on Trump, all of them sensed opportunism when they saw Pence. And, you know, voters just don't like that. They, they want a candidate who they think uh, is, is following his gut and doing what he thinks is right. And they don't see that when they look at Mike Pence.
2: Yeah, I think it remains to be seen. I mean, we, we have to see the full shape of the 2024 field and see he's what voters... He's not even officially running it. Well, yeah, he's yeah. not officially running it. See what voters right. decide. Can obviously, I? Well, I want to get to the DeSantis yeah, yeah, go, go stuff go because, it, because, because obviously Pence is dealing with that yeah. loyalty <clears> to <throat> Trump, dealing, navigating that. So are people like uh, Governor DeSantis. And he is speaking out in his most mm-hmm. wide-ranging criticism we have seen of Trump yet. He responded to some of the nicknames that Trump gave him
3: what um, is your favorite nickname that trump's given you so far is it ron ronda sanctimonious or meatball ron
20: <laughs> well i can't uh, I think even he went off meatball wrong, I, but. I, I can't uh i don't know how to spell the sanctimonious i don't really know what it means but i you know i kind of like it's long it's got a lot of valve i mean so we go with that that's fine you know you can call me you can call me whatever you want i mean just as long as you you know also call me a winner
2: make okay, it what do you make of that and also him going after talking about trump's character his leadership and the direct criticisms we're seeing.
18: I think DeSantis is trying to walk a fine line, and these focus groups voters repeatedly expressed that they didn't like that Trump was constantly attacking other Republican uh, candidates, other Republican figures. Uh, they want party loyalty. They want party solidarity. And uh, they liked that DeSantis has managed to avoid being in the fray with Trump. So I think he's, uh, if he's going to end up running against Trump, he's going to have to draw that contrast, uh, but mm-hmm. I think he's wise to try to avoid wading into that fray this early yeah all
2: right mckay coffins thank you so much for joining us this morning
18: thank you very much for that my point was that
1: um everyone who has any affiliation with donald trump if you served in the administration they're going to be dealing with the same thing that mike pence um is dealing with if you're running for president so we're following two major investigations surrounding donald trump the mar-a-lago special counsel probe and a possible indictment here in new york in the stormy daniels hush money case we have team coverage standing by stay with us More CNN this morning to come after the break.
4: Federal judge is convinced the DOJ has evidence Donald Trump intentionally misled his own lawyers during the Mar-a-Lago
2: documents investigation. That means attorney-client privilege would not apply and that the defense attorney could have to testify in front of the grand jury. It basically means the first time that the judge is saying here that it is Trump who may have committed the crime here. So it's incredibly significant.
21: A Dominion lawyer told the judge today, quote, the fix was in, arguing that Fox hosts knew they were promoting false claims about Dominion rigging the 2020 election.
12: They argue that a lot of the coverage at Fox was not based on what was true and what was false, but based on business decisions.
2: Fox News, for its part, says that it is fully protected by the First Amendment here.
19: A Colorado dentist accused of killing his wife by poison, believed to have been given to her in protein shakes.
6: Police say his search history showed phrases such as, how many grams of pure arsenic will kill
7: a human? Here we have a guy who rather than get divorced, decides he's gonna get rid of his wife and do it through the internet. This is very, very incriminating.
3: We lost an icon, Willis Reed, passed away at the age of 80, a two-time
20: world champ and a seven-time all-star. I'm on the of the great players who played before me. And to know that uh, you were one of them and you were, at one point, one of the best in the league is something that, you know, you'll always be there.
19: We're a nation, a great nation, in large part because of the power of the arts and humanities. We continue the legacy of awarding two of our nation's highest honors to 23 extraordinary Americans.
2: Good morning and welcome to CNN This Morning. We are tracking big developments in two major but different investigations of former President Trump. Here in New York, the grand jury in the Stormy Daniels Hush Money case is set to reconvene today. We're waiting to see if they make a decision on criminal charges. Sources tell CNN that Trump has been toying with the idea of creating somewhat of a media spectacle if he is indicted. Plus, CNN has exclusive reporting that emails between Trump's attorney and Stormy Daniels from years ago have now been turned over to the district attorney. Daniels' lawyer says his client divulged confidential information to Joe Tacopina before he joined Trump's legal team. And the special counsel's probe of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago is also intensifying. We are now learning that a federal judge is convinced Trump may have used his own defense attorney, pictured here, Evan Corcoran, to break the law, allegedly, when federal agents were trying to retrieve top-secret files that were stored at his private Mar-a-Lago club in Florida. Sarah Murray Murray joins us now live. Sarah, obviously, while we were sleeping, there were a lot of deadlines that came out overnight. Can you get us up to speed on the latest of what these deadlines look like and what we are now waiting for?
8: Yeah, there was a lot. I mean, as you pointed out, a judge has ruled that essentially the prosecutors provided enough evidence to say Trump may have committed a crime to pierce the attorney client shield and force Evan Corcoran, one of Trump's attorneys who was very involved in the search for classified documents and telling the government, you know, we've turned everything over, uh, to testify. Now, the Trump team quickly appealed this and the appeals court set what is really a crazy briefing schedule, essentially forcing the Justice Department and the Trump team to file overnight. They have both filed, so now we are waiting to hear from the appeal court to say okay are you going to force evan corcoran to go testify or are you going to put this on pause for now all right we'll, we'll wait to find out sarah murray thank you so much thanks
1: so the fbi says it is seeing an uptick of violent rhetoric online and calls for a quote civil war after the former president told his supporters to protest and take our nation back brent Gengras is here with more Bren, good morning to you this is incredibly disturbing federal officials are proceeding with caution as this possible indictment looms over the former president?
17: Yeah. And listen, this is constantly being reevaluated every moment as we kind of get closer to a decision being made on whether or not an indictment is going to come down. Authorities are reassessing their positioning, reassessing all this chatter that they're seeing online. And again, there is some violent rhetoric that is now upticking. However, sources are telling us that it's not rising to the level of major concern at this point. It's actually sort of lacking the coordination and the volume that they have seen in the past to really be of major concern. One source also saying it's somewhat familiar chatter, meaning that it's really not a major concern again uh, just yet. But of course, again, this is something that they're continuing to monitor. They're also sort of pointing to uh, the fact that what they're seeing so far is protests outside of Trump Tower, outside the courthouse in lower Manhattan, and they're really just sort of tame. Nothing major has sort of broken out there just yet. In fact, one source saying there was a group that planned on coming into New York City, but changed their mind uh, at the last minute, decided not to come in. And they say some of this is in response to what they saw after January 6th. They believe protesters sort of have in their mind that arrests could happen, charges could follow, and so therefore are sort of taming down what their response might be should an indictment come. But of course, this is a very fluid situation. We haven't seen any sort of, um, you know, decision based on the indictment. And also, of course, we could always see some changes based on what the former president might say on his own, guys.
1: Yeah, we've seen some of the barricades. We've seen, you know, the number of officers. They were ramping up the uniformed officers, what have you. But how are they preparing for the possibility? Let's hope it doesn't happen and we want to get ahead of ourselves. But how are they preparing?
17: Exactly. Those preparations are still continuing. They're having the meetings uh, continually with the Secret Service, with federal authorities at the FBI, the NYPD. So this coordination is literally happening every single Day And a lot of this, of course, is going to be based on the fact of what happens next. Does the grand jury bring an indictment? And there's all these possible scenarios that could play out. Does the district attorney actually make the announcement first in his own press conference? Does the former president want to have his own press conference? Where uh, does this all happen? Of course, this is going to be with the utmost security concerns for the former president. He is ju- if he is indicted, he is, of course, going to be treated just like anyone else who has charges against him, needs to come to the courthouse uh, or some location and have those obviously formal charges uh, placed against him and put under arrest in the whole nine yards. So uh, this is all being considered.
1: Fingerprints, mugshot, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Brent. All right. Appreciate that.
0: All right. So let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst, former federal prosecutor Laura Coates. You're perfect for this for so many reasons. Thank you so much. We love you in the morning. Um, You were a prosecutor at DOJ. You know how this works. The fact that DOJ attorneys were able to convince Judge Beryl Howell that former President Trump used one of his defense attorneys in furtherance of a crime. And the fact that this is the first time that the Justice Department is arguing it has evidence and this, this is a documents probe, that Trump may have committed a crime. How extraordinary is it
22: it is extremely significant. We hold so dear in this country the idea of privacy, especially in private communications. Attorney-client privilege, everyone knows what it is because you think to yourself, listen, I can tell my lawyer anything and I won't have consequences. But there are consequences if it's involved in a crime or fraud. And so, to right, you convince, don't have that shield anymore. You don't have the shield. everything Not everything you've ever said will come out, but you can pierce that sort of privacy screen. But to show a judge that that's worthwhile, that that's warranted in a situation, is extraordinary. It has to show they've made a prima facie case. A fancy way of saying, look, I'm kind of convinced something actually went wrong here. It doesn't mean beyond a reasonable doubt. It doesn't mean probable cause that a crime has been committed to the legal sense. But it does say, look, enough to pierce this communication and you got to tell me what was said. You can't run behind the curtain and say, oh, I'm sorry, it's my lawyer. And why? We don't want people to go to their lawyers and be able to use them as a tool to commit crimes and then benefit from the protections of that private communications.
1: We have to be clear which case we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. Because we were just (laughs) talking about the DA with Mm Bryn, but this one is the reporting that you have that we're talking about on the documents.
2: Yeah. And I think one thing that's really important here is we're waiting to hear what happens today. We don't know. If the D.C. Circuit Court doesn't weigh in today, though, Evan Corcoran, this defense attorney, is going to have to go and testify without the attorney-client privilege. I think, obviously, prosecutors think that will be helpful to their case. We don't actually know, though, what he would say. It doesn't mean that it's like it monumentally changes this. What would be significant is the ruling in and of itself.
22: Exactly. Well, we don't know what's going to be said. We know that the court has said you have to testify because we believe that there is some indication that the communications you had with your client are such that they should not be protected. We want to get to that. That is a very big step to take. And it's a former president, by the way, everyone. Don't forget that it's a former president's communications. It's not White House counsel we're talking about, but it's the idea of a former president being told you don't get the benefit of attorney client privilege. Even more than that, though whatever is said is moving the needle in the direction, at least for the public and the court of public opinion, that there is some movement in the DOJ. This is Jack Smith's case. This is a case about the classified documents. And so as we're looking to figure out these procedural hurdles of what I get to know, remember what we still don't know fully. We don't know fully what was in all those documents at Mar-a-Lago. We don't know what steps were taken to try to either return classified docs or withhold them. And we don't know in the other probes to your point, on. What's going to happen in Georgia? What might happen in Manhattan today? But it's all circling. But these, really important to note, unrelated cases. They do not have to coordinate together. They are entirely separate entities.
2: Can I note one other thing that I forgot to mention earlier, which is that also the judge here has gotten a hold, because he had to turn them over, I believe, Evan Corcoran's handwritten notes Mm -hmm. and audio recordings of, like, verbal notes. So they also have all of that that is at stake here. We call those receipts.
22: And they could be good receipts. They could be bad receipts. But the fact, that they exist good for are problematic. Me. Well, not necessarily. They could be indicating that there was some coordination between the attorney and the client to do something nefarious. It could also fully exonerate and say, nothing to see here, folks. But again, a judge is willing to take a chance and say, whatever this government attorney has presented, it's enough for us to believe you don't get the automatic default, which is mm-hmm. attorney-client privilege communications are private.
11: Well, I'm glad we're
1: speaking about that. Because quickly, I want to get to this. Can we play? This is Joe. I, I don't mm-hmm. know if you were on this panel. You may have been, but you have been on, on panels with Joe Tacopino. Mm-hmm. This is from an interview, um, and the whole idea of attorney-client privilege is being thrown around. And whether yes. right, Joe Tacopino, Pierce said
0: in so, a different in a different probe, this is a
1: DA probe. Can we play the soundbite, please, quickly?
3: and I can't really talk about my impressions or any conversations we had because there was an attorney-client privilege that attached even to a consultation.
1: So apparently he met with her. Well, he didn't meet with her, with Stormy Daniels. He's saying that she called his office and spoke with someone or at least contacted his office, but he never had any contact with her. And now they're deciding if he can, I I would imagine, stay on this case or if he did something wrong. So
22: attorney-client privilege attaches to attorneys and clients. But prospective clients, if you reach out to an attorney and you say, listen, here's the evidence I want to tell you about, here's the case I might want to bring, here's what I'm facing in terms of legal jeopardy. Well, the attorney who might prospectively represent you still has to honor those communications because otherwise, why would anyone seek out legal advice if they knew that just because it wasn't signed on the dotted line, you can tell everything? So the question here will be whether there was sufficient contact to establish either a prospective client relationship or an actual one. And then you will attach the privilege accordingly. Here, he may have been, and I don't know the full facts of what he will say, but he may have been trying to say that someone in his firm had some contact but did not rise to the level of a sufficient relationship. But okay. it's not a good look if the current attorney for the president of the United, for president of the United has this issue because, of course, then it might undermine the ability to make a defense for Trump. All
1: right. Again, he's saying he had no contact with her. He's denying all of it. All right. Yep. Thank you, Laura. Nice to see you. appreciate it. We need to get on to this news uh, of what's going to happen today. This morning, the CEO of Norfolk Southern will face another grilling on Capitol Hill following last month's toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Uh, in a new development, the CEO, Alan Shaw, is expected to say this, that his company now supports legislative efforts to enhance the safety of the freight rail industry. This is a shift
20: from what he told lawmakers earlier this month. Listen to this. Will your team lobby for safety improvements rather than against them? Senator, we will
19: continue to follow science. We will continue to follow data. Will you make that commitment right now to guarantee paid sick days to all of your workers? That's not a radical demand. It really
23: is not.
11: I'm committed to continuing to speak to our employees about quality of life issues that
1: are important to them. Let's bring in now Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine, who will also be testifying this morning uh, at the hearing. Good morning to you, sir. We, we thank you for joining us. Let's morning. get straight to it because I know that you've got to uh, get ready for, for this. You sent a letter to Norfolk Southern CEO, Alan Shaw, who we saw there just yesterday, urging him to support legislation that would regulate the, the railroad industry. How urgently is this needed?
7: It's really very urgent. Uh, you know, this could have happened in any number of communities, uh, not only across Ohio, but across this country. Uh, we need to bring the safety up to date with the technology that we have today. So it was a very welcome uh, statement that he go- apparently is going to make today. We're very happy about that.
1: Listen, there's a, at least a bipartisan effort, but may, there may be a snag in it because some Republicans in Congress are reluctant to support this bipartisan train legislation that is being pushed by J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown, a Republican and a Democrat there. Uh, Congressman Bill Johnson of Ohio said that it would give Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg a blank check. What will what will you say to lawmakers today, especially those from your state who don't want these laws?
7: Well, look, Congressman Johnson has a good bill as well. Uh, It's a bipartisan bill uh, with Congressman Sykes. So, you know, out of out of those two bills, we ought to be able to get a bill that uh, will will make a big, big difference. you know, I served many years in, in the House and the Senate. I'm not going to get into the, the, the gory details about which version of the bill is better, but we just, we need the changes. Uh, I think either bill will do a good job. So you're confident of that
1: at least one of these bills will pass? Are you leaning towards either one?
7: <laughs> Look, I'm very hopeful uh, that Congress will, will, will do this. Uh, you know, what we've seen in East Palestine uh, the trauma that this community has gone through, about 4,700 people. Uh, great, great community, great people. And then this happens. And, you know, they're used to having trains go through. Uh, a lot of trains go through East Palestine. Uh, probably people don't even hear them anymore, didn't hear them anymore. And then, bam, one night, uh, massive derailment. Uh, and this this community has really been hurt. Uh, so we don't want to see this happen to other other communities.
1: Speaking of trauma, your word there—it has been almost two full months since that derailment. When can you say that the cleanup in East
7: Palestine is complete? Uh, it's got a ways to go. I mean, I'm going out there again today. Uh, I've been checking on it about every week uh, personally, just to see exactly you know where th- where things are. But it's a long it's a long process. Uh, they've removed one rail. There's actually two rails. They're still actually on the first railing. Uh, all the all the dirt uh, soil around that. So uh, we've, they've got a ways to go. But look, progress is being made. It is sped up. Uh, the trucks are rolling out of there every day. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's moving forward. Well, talk about being, you know, re-traumatized. This is a, really an
1: environmental catastrophe that folks are dealing with there on in more than one way, because also last month, there was an explosion at a metal factory near Cleveland that killed one person, left at least you know a dozen people injured. Community members are concerned that people may have been exposed to lead contamination after that explosion. What do you know?
7: Uh, our Ohio EPA has been directly involved uh, since the beginning. Uh, it is uh, my understanding that there was lead there, but the lead is in a separate place. Uh, the, the tragic explosion, uh, one individual, as you say, was killed, others injured. Uh, but the lead itself was separate from the area where the actual explosion took place. But we're, we're going to continue to work there, uh, work the plan of, of the cleanup, uh, and you know, continue to, to work with people in the community.
1: Governor DeWine, as we have it here, you know we have to talk politics, right? And we got 2024 looming. So we want to turn <laughs> to that race now, the presidential race. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is really inching closer to officially running for the GOP nomination, but he's already a- appealing to Ohio voters. This is what he said in his new book, and I'm going to quote here. He says, I was geographically raised in Tampa Bay, but culturally my upbringing reflected the working-class communities in western Pennsylvania and northeast Ohio. From weekly church attendance to the expectation that one would earn his keep. So uh, can someone who is not from Ohio be culturally from Ohio? What, how do you thread that needle, needle there?
7: Sure. Oh, sure. Look, look. Ohioans, uh, we have a, a great deal in common uh, with people, for example, in, in, in western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, uh, you know, we're a manufacturing state these are people uh, in ohio who are just hard hard workers so if by that he means you know families that get up in the morning go to work uh, take care of themselves uh, focus on their kids and their family and their community yeah absolutely
1: yeah uh, I want to talk to you about what's happening here in Manhattan, where I am sitting right now, you know, the hush money payments, Stormy Daniels, and the, the president possibly being indicted soon. We don't know if that is going to happen, but you have said that you don't know the facts in this case, but you are a former prosecutor. Do you see a problem with the without knowing the facts of this case, but do you see a problem here? What do you think?
7: Well, as a former prosecutor, uh, I just kind of wonder why it has taken so long uh, for, uh, you know, this this matter to be dealt with. uh, Or, you know, it's a long time since the facts of this case. Now, look, if if you've got a long investigation like we had in Pike County uh, in Ohio, uh, you know, it takes a long time to put all the all the pieces together. And but in a case like this, it's just hard to understand why it has taken so long are you saying that Um, the former president should
1: not be criminally charged
7: no look i don't know that i mean i look i I don't know that but i just think that when it takes that long in a relatively fact specific case that's that's fairly simple you have to say well why is it taking you so long and that's you know in, in the prosecutor world unless a case is very complicated you either have the evidence or you don't have the evidence you either go to court Uh, and try someone, or or you back off and say, look, uh, we don't have enough uh, evidence to move forward. It's hard to understand why. Uh, Again, I don't know all the facts of this case at all, but why this has taken so long.
1: Governor, thank you. Good luck today as well. be with you. Thank you.
7: Thank you.
2: All right. All eyes are on the Fed this morning, including at the White House, as the Fed Chair Jay Powell is preparing to announce a critical decision Do they raise interest rates? This is all against the backdrop of the banking crisis and this fight against inflation that has still been playing out for a year now. Today's decision could have a major impact on your bank loans, your credit cards, where you bank and potentially the direction of the U.S. economy. With all that at stake, let's go to CNN's Arlette Signs at the White House. Arlette, what is the White House watching for today? I imagine they're kind of just trying to see what's going to happen just as much as the rest of us.
8: Yeah, they really are, Caitlin, and the Federal Reserve right now is facing two conundrums. They're trying to tamp down inflation while also trying to ensure that there aren't any more deeper systemic problems in the U.S. banking industry. And that is why the White House will be watching this announcement from the Federal Reserve very closely before the collapse of Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. Analysts believed that interest rates would be raised about half a point. But now analysts think that it'll, it might be closer to a quarter of a point or potentially uh, pause for some time as well. So the White House will be watching this to see what it means for borrowing rates for American consumers, but also to see uh, how it reflects what the Federal Reserve is thinking uh, about the state of the banking industry at this moment. Of course, the administration has repeatedly tried to stress that the bank system is resilient. Yesterday, you had Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying that the banking uh, system is sound, the economy is doing well. And it all comes at a time when the White House is very aware that the state of the economy is at the heart of many Americans' concerns, especially as they're gearing up for a potential re-election bid uh, in the coming months. Yeah.
2: And they've said inflation is their number one problem. Arlette, we'll see what they say about what the Fed does. Thank you so much.
0: All right, this morning, a man is accusing actress Gwyneth Paltrow of crashing into him on the ski slopes and then skiing away, why Gwyneth Paltrow is seeking just one dollar in damages. She says it's the other way around.
1: And breaking just moments ago a, a, um, in Ukraine, a residential block in Zaporizhia apparently struck by a missile. The moment of impact caught on camera. We're going to show it to you. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
0: Welcome back to CNN this morning. A lawsuit against Gwyneth Paltrow is going to trial in Utah. In a Park City courtroom on Tuesday, a 76-year-old man accused the actress of crashing into him while skiing. This happened in 2016. He says she knocked him down, broke his ribs, and caused a brain injury. Paltrow is countersuing him for just a dollar in damages, saying he crashed into her. Our Chloe Malas is following all of this. For her, obviously, this isn't about money. That's why the dollar figure. Uh, this is about Uh, What she says actually happened. Exactly. And this took
24: place seven years ago. And we are still talking about it. Now, he first sued her for $3.1 million. Now he's suing her for $300,000, Poppy. And it's the case that everybody's watching right now. And she, well, in Hollywood. And she is going to be back in court again today. Actress Gwyneth Paltrow appearing in a Park City, Utah courtroom Tuesday in a trial stemming from a 2016 ski crash. 76-year-old Terry Sanderson is suing Paltrow for $300,000 in damages after he claims that she was skiing out of control, knocking him down hard, knocking him out, and causing a brain injury and four broken ribs and other serious injuries.
20: Paltrow skis down to the right. She turns her head up. To look at her children, as she turns her head back down, she screams. Then skis back into the back of Terry Sanderson. She rides his back down. They hit the ground hard, and Miss Paltrow bounces off of Terry.
24: Paltrow was countersuing for a dollar in legal fees, claiming that she was downhill from Sanderson and that he plowed into her back. She sustained a full body blow and that she was angry with the plaintiff and said so, and that the plaintiff apologized.
13: Suddenly she sees two skis appear between her skis. And a man comes up right behind her. They they begin falling to the right. And she's uh, feeling freaked out, I think is a fair statement, and he hits down, apparently uh, his side and his head, and she is essentially falling on him, but keep in mind his skis are intertwined now with hers.
24: Sanderson's attorney claims that he was left face down in the snow, unconscious after the crash. Further stating that Paltrow and her ski instructor skied away without getting Sanderson any medical care. A friend of Sanderson's who witnessed the accident testified.
20: I heard a scream and then, and then,
1: and then I see this, this, this skier just slam into the back of Terry and,
19: when, and she just slammed him. How hard? Very hard. He, I mean very hard.
24: So everybody's wondering, is Gwyneth Paltrow going to take the stand and, you know, really explain her side as to what happened? What we do know, you all, is that her children are expected, uh, Apple and Moses, and maybe even her husband, Brad, will also take the stand. Um, You know, they were skiing with her that day, and obviously there are varying recollections of what happened, and this took place seven years ago. But, um, you know, it's very clear that Paltrow, she's doing this to prove a point, um, which is why she is countersuing for just a dollar in legal fees. Um, but it's really interesting. A lot of people have asked me actually a lot of questions about this particular case.
1: It's obvious it's not for, uh, money for her because $300,000, quite honestly, to Gwyneth so she could just pay, you know, settle it for a nuisance value. But she believes, obviously, in her case. Yeah. So yes. it's not backing And the- it
0: could happen to anyone in a skiing accident like that in <laughs> terms of, you know, would they face a lawsuit. Chloe, thank you thank very you, much. Chloe. Up today, the Fed will decide whether or not to raise interest rates again, what officials are considering after this banking crisis.
2: And the gloves are really off. This is what Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had to, has to say about his former ally. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Poppy is moments away from interviewing Senator Jeff Merkley on the Federal Reserve's looming decision today when it comes to interest rates, but first we want to start with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as he launched some of his most direct attacks yet at a potential 2024 arrival or President Trump. This is in a wide-ranging Fox Nation interview with Piers Morgan where DeSantis criticized Trump's character, his leadership style, the nicknames Trump has given to DeSantis. He also says that he is certain if he does run for the White House, he can win.
3: What is your favorite nickname that Trump's given you so far? Is
20: it Ron, Ron De or Meatball Ron? <laughs> well, I can't. I think uh, even he went off Meatball Ron. I, but. I, I can't. Uh, I don't know how to spell De I don't really know what it means, but I, you know, I kind of like it's long. It's got a lot of vowels. I mean, so we go with that. That's fine. You know, you can call me. You can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you, you know, also call me a winner.
2: DeSantis also contrasted Trump with past presidents known for their moral standards, saying, "Quote." you really want people to look like our founding fathers. It's not saying that you don't ever make a mistake in your personal life, but I think what type of character are you bringing? So somebody who really sets the standard is George Washington because he always put the republic over his own personal interest. I think the person, DeSantis said, is more about how you handle your public duties and the kind of character you bring to that endeavor. CNN's Steve Contorno is live in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, Steve, I mean, DeSantis is very clearly trying to draw this line on leadership skills, on character ahead of a potential matchup between him and Trump here in these very direct attacks.
21: Exactly, Caden. In that quote where he's saying, as long as you call me winner, the inference being that Trump is a loser. So really an attempt by DeSantis to draw sort of a distinction between himself and a political figure that he has been closely tied to ever since he was elected governor in 2018 as the Trump endorsed candidate. And these two men have mostly been allies, as you said, but DeSantis drawing some sharp contrast with Trump. We saw him talk about uh, how he ran a tight ship as governor versus the chaos of the Trump White House. He is presenting himself as a family man versus Trump, who is in legal trouble for allegations that he made hush, money, uh, hush payment money payments to an adult film star. And Morgan also asked him about uh, Trump's propensity to mislead and the sort of untruths that we saw from Trump over the years. And DeSantis responded by saying, quote, truth is essential. We have to agree that there's a certain reality to the world we live in. It's not your truth or my truth. It is the truth. Now, I think there would be some Democrats in Florida and probably some people in the medical community as well who would suggest DeSantis may not be the best arbiter of truth. But nevertheless, it's a, it's another example of how he is differentiating himself from the former president as he prepares to run for the White House himself.
1: He hasn't even uh, announced, Steve. So, I mean, it's really early and, I, right. you know, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. But I mean. It's looking as though he's going to run. Yeah,
2: but you're right. We, yeah. we should wait until yeah, he announces. we should this.
1: wait until he announces. So um, I wonder if it's going to help DeSantis. Is it hurt DeSantis? Because there's been no announcement yet.
21: Yeah, it's been this long sort of soft launch. We have the book and the book tour. He's doing a lot of interviews with conservative media, a lot of interviews with Murdoch-owned media, which has really uh, rankled the feathers of of Trump's allies who have attacked DeSantis uh, for giving sort of this unfettered access to uh, someone who has clearly turned the page uh, on President Trump. But DeSantis has used this opportunity to make the case that he is better positioned than Trump to win the nomination in 2024, he has talked about how much he, how large his victory was uh, in 2022 in the midterms compared to Trump. You know, he won by 19 percentage points. Trump won by a handful of uh, percentage points, and he gave this quote as well, where he's talking about how well he did uh, with independent voters, saying. I won with independence by 18 points. I think anybody should take the formula like that nationally. You can't win with just Republicans. you got to win with independence. Uh, and what's interesting to uh, Don and Caitlin is that DeSantis said that if he were to jump in the race, he won't even get bogged down in, in mudslinging with Trump. He is already looking ahead to a matchup with President Biden.
18: Hmm.
1: That's a tough thing to do. Easy for him to say. Tough to avoid. Yeah, tough to avoid. Right on. Thank you, Steve. Right. All
0: right. Thank you, guys. The Federal Reserve is set to announce a decision today in its year-long war on inflation. Will it hike interest rates yet again, or will the Fed pause its rate hikes in an effort to try to stabilize the banking sector? The Fed Chair, Jay Powell. Uh, has to make this decision. And this marks one of the most important meetings and speeches of his career. It will be the first time the world hears from Powell since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and the fire sale of Credit Suisse and the lifeline extended to First Republic. The recent stress in the banking system is placing huge pressure on what the Fed does today. Investors are largely pricing in a quarter uh, point, 25 basis point hike and will listen to exactly how Chair Powell explains this decision. Let's talk about this and a lot more with Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon. He served on the Senate Banking Committee for years. Senator, good morning and thanks for joining us. Good to have you on. Good,
20: good morning, Poppy. Good to be with you.
0: Gosh, hot, an impossible decision, right? What do you think the Fed should do?
20: Well, I think we are going to see that quarter point. They're between a rock and a hard place. They're, they're very concerned if they don't do enough, it'll look like they're not fighting inflation, which has consequences. If they do too much and affect the economy too much when banks are a little bit rocky, they could figure they could cause a little more uh, trouble in uh, confidence in the banking system. Uh, so I think we'll see it go down the middle with that 0.25.
0: This is what Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, said yesterday to the American Banking Association.
25: Our intervention was necessary to protect the broader U.S. banking system. And similar actions could be warranted if smaller institutions suffered deposit runs that posed the risk of contagion.
0: She's basically saying, there, Senator, smaller, mid sized banks, if you fail too, we've got you above the $250,000 FDIC insurance threshold. Is that necessary?
20: Well, uh, she is projecting uh, absolute confidence, because what we had was a classic run on a bank. We had uh, Silicon Valley uh, have billions of dollars withdrawn within a few hours, driven by kind of Internet communication. And uh, the situation with Silicon is very different than most banks. They had a huge investment in bonds, which meant they were incredibly vulnerable to a rise in interest rates. But now we have people saying, well, if..." if this fear even if your bank doesn't fit those circumstances this fear if other people withdraw we better withdraw and she's wanting to say everyone calm down uh we're going to protect whatever we need to do uh, to keep the system stable so she's sending that message of confidence but there is danger in that yeah so let's talk about
0: that danger is that really what the u.s government should do is say no matter what we've got you to any limit
20: I think her projection of uh, confidence that we will uh, take care of the problems as they emerge is probably the right message when you're facing uh, a, a kind of fear-driven possibility of runs mm-hmm. on banks. But the danger of, of what they did with Silicon, which was to ensure all the deposits for the entire level, in the longer term, that presents a situation where banks say, hey, we can take more risk, right? which means we have to be looking at the liquidity standards, we have to look at the capital standards, we have mm-hmm. to look at a better stress test all the things that when I back when I was fighting for the Volcker rule yeah. uh, in 2009 uh, were very important
0: it sounds like you agree with some of your Republican colleagues who are saying there is moral hazard here and this is a bailout and at some point you know Americans will foot the bill American taxpayers do you think well, they have a the, point
20: it, well right now there's no risk of us footing the bill because they're going to Increase the FDIC deposit requirements in order to cover the the risk, uh, but uh, it's maybe. a precarious situation. Yeah, well, maybe. Well, I think that's going to be a huge impetus to do that. So you uh, we would are not su- going to let the taxpayer be on the hook.
0: I'm sorry to speak over you. You you would you would support then what some of your fellow lawmakers are pushing for raising the FDIC insured limit above 250,000.
20: Well, not necessarily. No, uh, because that does create more hazard on the risk-taking side. But I think it's it needs to be wrestled with. It went up from 100,000 to 250 back when we were in the 2009 crisis. But the situation in which the smaller or the the large regional banks have much lower stress tests, liquidity standards, capital standards, that has to be reexamined.
0: Yeah. Just one note you said the situation with SVB is very different than other banks I'm not sure if you've seen this new paper that just came out of Columbia Northwestern and USC but their analysis is that 190 more banks could fail and there are 10% of all US banks that have larger unrecognized losses than those of SVB so there's a real danger here for almost 200 more banks they say
20: yes when it's when it's when we look at that 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 outline risk, uh, that is very worrisome. That's exactly why Yellen is is trying to mm-hmm. project great confidence uh, and discourage uh, any type of uh, runs on the banks.
0: You are. Uh, let's turn to China, Russia. What we just saw over the last three days. You are not only a member of the Foreign Relations Committee. You're a co-chair of the Congressional Executive Commission on China. And we just saw Vladimir Putin whining and dieting Xi Jinping three hours of meetings here, uh, saying they talk constantly. Putin committed to un- uninterrupted oil supply to China. What is your biggest takeaway from this visit, which ends today? And are Russia and China more of a threat to global stability now than they were three days ago?
20: Poppy, this was a three-day bro-fest celebrating authoritarian power. And you have China, which uh, didn't hesitate to run over the top of Hong Kong. Uh, you have Russia, which uh, invaded Ukraine. Uh, and they're both authoritarian leaders who want to flex their muscles in the, in the world and they're finding that they're very comfortable being lined up with each other. So it's that authoritarian block is so counter to what we want to see in the world, a world of freedom of assembly and speech and, and religion. Uh, and uh, it is it is a, th- a threat to freedom everywhere.
0: I appreciate your time, Senator Merkley, very much.
20: Puffy, good to be with you. Thank you. Don, right, thanks, quite
2: a description of that summit between she and Putin.
1: What did you say? A three day or two day? Three day, three day bro fest of
2: authoritarian of authoritarian, authoritarian,
1: <laughs>
0: authoritarian bro fest. Yeah, something well. like that.
1: Nice, Bobby, thank you. Up next, just in, uh, a missile strike on the residential block, a residential block in Zaporizhia. We're talking about Ukraine, and we're live on the ground there for you. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So look at your screen. Look at this video. Wow, right there. That is the breaking news that's coming out of Ukraine right now. Officials on the ground say that Two Russian missiles hit a residential high-rise building. This is in Zaporizhia. You can see the moment of impact blowing a hole in that building. Ukrainian President Zelensky posting this video to social media saying, quote, Russia is shelling the city with bestial savagery. Look at the flames coming out of there. Uh, They're hitting residential areas where ordinary people and children live and they're being fired at. That is the quote. See an international correspondent, Ivan Watson, is live in Ukraine right now. Ivan, tell us what you're seeing. We understand that rescuers are conducting rescue and search operations and extinguishing the fire where this happened. This is just amazing to, to see.
19: Well, and you know, as you can see here in Eastern Ukraine, it is a sunny kind of late winter, early spring day. And that's when at least two missiles, the Ukrainian authorities say hit the city of Zaporizhia, uh, hitting two nine story apartment buildings. Uh, The information from on the ground is that the rescue workers are still working. They're still doing the search and rescue. So we have no information right now about the actual casualties there as they're still trying to put the fires out, but you can see from the. video from the scene, just the scale of the destruction, you can just imagine what uh, a horror that must have been like for any residents who may have been in that building at that time. Now, this isn't the first time that Zaporizhia, which is probably 25 minutes drive from the front lines, active front lines, it's not the first time it's been hit by large Russian missiles that uh, apartment buildings have been hit by them. But the uh, Ukrainians are immediately calling this a war. Don, I think it's important to keep in mind, this is one incident. The Ukrainians are saying that there were a number of drone and missile strikes on Ukrainian towns and cities overnight, and apparently launched shortly after the Russian and Chinese leaders embraced each other and bid adieu to each other in Moscow after having declared that they wanted to create a more just and peaceful and democratic uh, international order. Uh, Then there were several missiles launched by uh, fighter planes, uh, the Ukrainians say, at the southern port city of Odessa, uh, that some of those missiles were shot down. at least one got through. Uh, meanwhile, there were, uh, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, I'm afraid, but more than a dozen Shahid drones. Those are manufactured by Iran, given to Russia as part of this military cooperation between Iran and Russia, fired uh, from north of Ukraine, uh, hitting uh, one uh, town in the Kiev region, about 50 miles out of the capital, killing at least four people. Uh, some of those drones believed to have been shot down over the Zhitomur region, meanwhile the Russians are saying that they shot down some kind of drones that apparently they're claiming were fired by Ukraine towards the uh, Russian occupied Crimean city of Sevastopol. All of this just gives you a sense of the air war that is underway, the civilians who are caught in the middle of it, the innocent bystanders of this savage conflict that Russia launched with its invasion more than a year ago, Don.
1: All right. Ivan Watson reporting for us in Ukraine, and this is the breaking news this morning. Officials on the ground say that two Russian missiles hit a residential high-rise building in Zaporizhia. They are searching now for victims, and they're trying to extinguish the fire. Our Ivan Watson in Ukraine, again, thank you so much much caitlin
2: and on this breaking news coming up we're going to speak with the former defense secretary mark esper about the latest on ukraine's fight and how a just completed meeting between putin and china's president xi could shape the war
1: It is a Wednesday, so we're halfway through. It's a Wednesday.
2: It's a Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> it's a busy Wednesday.
1: It's a Wednesday, and there's a lot going on. We're going to explain lots of stories. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. Welcome back.
2: Thank you. Poppy's I'm
0: glad to be out. back. I'm healed. Thanks to antibiotics. Yeah,
1: puppy. Kid. Kid gave her a little Blame bug the kids. but we move on right. We truck on so we're going to talk about Donald Trump's legal problems mounting we're now learning that a judge is convinced that he may have used his own attorney to break the law when federal agents were trying to recover classified documents from Mar-a-Lago
2: and all this is coming as Trump is preparing for what could be an indictment in the Stormy Daniels hush money case here in New York Now, Trump's lawyer, in that case, one you've seen on television recently, is also under scrutiny for emails exchanged with the adult film actress.
0: And the Federal Reserve is getting ready to announce a crucial decision today. Will it keep hiking interest rates to fight inflation in the middle of a banking crisis?
1: But here is where we begin. It is a lot. Big developments in two different investigations of the former president. I'm talking about former President Donald Trump. First, we're learning that there's evidence of a potential crime in the special counsel's probe of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Sources are saying that a federal judge is convinced that Trump may have used his own attorney to break the law when federal agents were trying to retrieve top-secret files stored at his private club in Florida. That attorney may need to testify again and face questions that he previously refused to answer by claiming attorney-client privilege. And CNN's Caitlin Collins is going to break down the reporting in just a moment, so stand by for that. But here in New York, the grand jury in the Stormy Daniels hush money case set to reconvene today. We are waiting to see if they make a decision to indict the former president. We have exclusive reporting, CNN reporting, that Trump's lawyer is coming under new scrutiny for emails that he exchanged with Stormy Daniels years ago. Straight now to the big news in the Trump classified documents case. DOJ responding at 6 a.m. Caitlin Collins, what are you learning?
2: Yes. Important to note, this is the classified documents case, given we are talking about so many different investigations right now, including what's happening with Stormy Daniels here in New York. This is focused on classified documents. And while you were sleeping overnight, there were a flurry of deadlines for both Trump's legal team and the Justice Department when it came to this effort by the Justice Department to get one of Trump's defense attorneys, Evan Corcoran, to testify piercing that shield of attorney-client privilege, basically not being able to cite it when he is asked questions by those attorneys. Now, this is all up to a D.C. Circuit Court, but at midnight, Trump's attorneys had to essentially make their case for why they believe that Evan Corcoran should not have to go and testify without attorney-client privilege, why it does not meet that threshold. The Justice Department also had their own deadline at 6 a.m. for prosecutors. Both of those deadlines made overnight. And now this is all in the hands of the D.C. Circuit Court, this three panel of judges who are going to be making this decision. And the reason this is so critical here and it could be so uh, could have such implications for where this case goes next is basically what we are seeing is that a judge has ruled that she does believe prosecutors met the threshold for the crime fraud exception. But what we've learned that's new here is they believe that it is Trump who potentially committed that crime. There had been some gray area, whether or not it was Corcoran that they were going after or Trump himself. Now it is clear that they are referencing Trump here. The judge has ruled that prosecutors met that burden. The Justice Department, according to that judge, has the evidence to back up that decision. Some of that could be the surveillance tapes from Mar-a-Lago. We know that is something that prosecutors subpoenaed. They got those surveillance tapes regarding those areas where the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago were being kept. So that is why that is so critical here. And so what it means and what we could see next is that Evan Corcoran, this defense attorney, may have to go testify again. He's already done so previously for about four hours. But this time he would not be able to cite attorney-client privilege when being asked questions, which we know from our reporting he did the last time he testified. So they are still seeking this testimony. They also want uh, this. It could be critical to the probe when it comes to obstruction. We don't know if this goes forward, what Evan Corcoran would have to say. What we do know is that he was ordered to turn over some of his own notes and audio recordings of notes that he made to prosecutor, or to the judge here, so that could be significant as well. But what we don't know is what we're waiting for, this decision by the D.C. Circuit Court, which we could learn potentially as soon as today.
1: Yeah. And that is, we're talking about in this case specifically, this is a classified documents case, but remember we have what's happening in Georgia and also what is here happening in here in New York. And that's where we turn.
0: Yes, that is where we turn to new CNN exclusive reporting on the Hush Money case right here in Manhattan. We have learned that emails between Stormy Daniels and one of Trump's current lawyers have been turned over to the district attorney, Alvin Bragg and his team. The communications are from 2018. That is when Daniels was looking for an attorney to represent her. Daniels lawyer now claims that she disclosed confidential confidential information to Joe Tacopina who would become and is now one of Trump's lawyers. Tachepina denies that there's any conflict of interest or that any confidential information was shared from Stormy Daniels with him or his office. He says neither, he neither met nor spoke with Daniels directly. But listen to this, OK? He did an interview with Don on this network back in 2018. They were talking about this. And here is what Tachepina said.
3: I can't really talk about my impressions or any conversations we had because there was an attorney-client privilege that attached even to a consultation.
0: Kristen Holmes broke this new development overnight. She joins us from West Palm Beach, Florida, near Mar-a-Lago. Kristen, can you just explain for people sort of big picture why this matters?
4: Yeah, so right now what we're waiting for to see what a judge decides, because that's the ultimate conclusion here. Does a judge decide that these communications merit some kind of attorney-client privilege and conflict of interest that would limit uh, Joe Takapena from being able to actually represent Trump or even disqualify him from doing so. And when you ask about what is the importance here, it's about that confidential information. We know that Stormy Daniels was looking for an attorney. Did she give Tacapina and his law firm confidential information in this case that would one, give them a leg up in this case, but two, could actually impact Daniels herself? Let's say this goes to trial, could any information that 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 she gave them be used against her in a cross-examination. So that is what the judge will have to look at and determine when he sees if these communications amount to a conflict of interest. Now, of course, Stormy Daniels' attorney turned these over because he believes that there is confidential information that was shared with Takapina and his firm. And as you noted, Takapina has said that there was no conflict of interest, that he neither met or spoke to Stormy Daniels, but then there is the tape where he essentially says that some sort of attorney-client privilege had been established. So, again, this is in the judge's hands, and that will be the ultimate determination as to whether or not there was a conflict of interest and if Takapina can continue forward representing Trump. Thank you. Before you go, you've got new reporting also on sort of
0: what aides to the president folks around him at Mar-a-Lago are saying now as he plans to go to Texas, for example, this weekend, yet yeah, they expect an indictment. What are they telling
4: you? Yeah, you know, Trump has been behind closed doors really running the full spectrum of reaction To this potential indictment. There are times when he has complained it is unfair. There are times he has celebrated it, saying that it's going to help him politically. And there are times where he has just ignored it altogether. And his aides say that part of this, they believe, is compartmentalization, but also the fact that he has resigned himself to the fact that he is going to likely be indicted. And what they're gearing up for is preparing this new normal. How exactly are they going to run a campaign under this indictment? And they're not operating with a lot of information as all of us are in terms of timing and what that would look like. I had one aide talking to me about that trip to Texas in particular saying, "Okay, so if the indictment comes down on a Friday, Saturday, we just go to Texas. You know, there's a lot of unknowns here. This would be an unprecedented move, having a 2024 presidential candidate and former U.S. president being indicted.
0: Kristen, thank you. Great reporting as always. Thanks very much.
1: All right. So let's um, talk about some of this, especially the new reporting. we're going to bring in now legal analyst, CNN legal analyst and federal uh, prosecutor, former federal prosecutor, Jennifer Rogers. Good morning, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Let's talk about this. The Justice Department has convinced a federal judge that the former president used one of his defense attorneys in furtherance of a crime.
16: That's yeah, huge. yeah, that's a big deal. I mean, the, the crime it's directly in furtherance of is obstruction of justice, of course, which is part of what Jack Smith and his folks are investigating. But these communications will also likely give them information about the underlying crime of the, the classified documents. So this is really blockbuster stuff. It's currently with the circuit. But if it gets turned over to the prosecution team and they get to speak further to Evan Corcoran, it could be a big break. For what them. are the Trump team um, chances on appeal here to the D.C. circuit? Well, so what Judge Howell ruled is that they made a prima facie case of, of, you know, breaching the attorney-client privilege. And it's hard to know um, without knowing what the communications are. It has to be relatively clear that that's what's going on. But, you know, Judge Howell's a very good judge. I don't have any reason to believe she got it wrong. And this this D.C. Circuit is unlikely to to overturn it, assuming she she got it right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So what's at stake here is whether or not he has to go testify and not be able to cite attorney-client privilege for not answering questions. We still don't know, though, if that does happen, what he would actually say.
16: No, we don't know what he would say, but, you know, we were in the the period where the uh, Justice Department is asking for things, NARA is asking for things, a subpoena is issued, and he's huddling with his lawyers, you know, what do we do, what should we do? And if it is true, as it seems like it is, that instead of saying, yes, I have these documents, what is our strategy, he says, you know, I don't have them, go off and tell them I don't have them. You know, that's a pretty clear indication of commissioner crime, and he's going to have to tell uh he's going to have to talk about that when he testifies. So that's why it's so critical. I mean, that could prove the obstruction case and, again, help on the the underlying case as well.
1: I want to get uh, to the Joe Tacopina thing that we've been talking about because it could be a game changer when it comes to representation and so forth. I am going to play what he said back in 2018 and then what he's saying now. Here it is.
3: I mean, you know, once that net is out, once the microscope is on you, Everything is fair game and it's hard to argue, oh, you can't look at this or you can't look at that. So, yes, if there's an issue with with that payment, to Stormy Daniels being that it was made on behalf of the candidate. okay, and it was not declared. That's fair game that a lawyer took out a home equity loan with his own money paid somebody that he didn't even know on behalf of a client who, by the way, had the wherewithal and the money to afford $130,000 and, by the way, didn't tell the client about the settlement agreement. It's an illegal agreement. It's a fraud. um, If that's, in fact, the case, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't pass the straight face test. And, And quite frankly, if that is what happened, we have a potential campaign finance issue. Does anyone actually believe, anyone, left, right, middle, whatever, that that if someone else were accused of of paying hush money to avoid a public sex scandal in the manner that Donald Trump is alleged to have um, avoided a public sex scandal, they would be prosecuted. The answer is on 100% no.
1: Okay, so you have the the Stormy Daniels possibility of piercing attorney-client privilege. Let's set that aside. He is now representing Donald Trump. Back then, he was making, it appears, correct me if I'm wrong, the complete opposite argument of what he's making
16: today. So this is why people make jokes about lawyers, right? Lawyers are advocates. They're not fact witnesses. So he's representing one client now, he's gonna put forward that position. Back in the day, he was maybe not representing Stormy Daniels, but was kind of talking about what her side of things would be. So, you know, he's not a fact witness. It's okay to take a a different position or put a different position out in the press. Uh, The real question is, did he represent her? What did he learn from her? And does that mean that he now cannot represent Donald Trump? And, you know, the judge will, will sort all that out. Usually in these cases, they don't actually disqualify the person. Courts do like to honor a criminal defendant's choice of counsel. So, probably they will say, You can't use anything you learned. You can't cross examine her if this goes to trial. But
2: they'll probably let him stay on
16: the case.
1: All right. Jennifer Rogers, Thank thank you so much. Thanks. Appreciate it.
2: Okay. Also, speaking of another legal case, this time not dealing with Trump directly, lawyers for Fox News and Dominion Voting Systems are going to be back in a Delaware courtroom for the second day. Both sides have been arguing over Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation suit against Fox. They are seeking what is called and known as a summary judgment. That means each side wants the judge to rule in their favor, basically skip a trial altogether. The proceedings yesterday went on for about six hours with a judge hitting Fox attorneys with some tough questions about their embrace of election denial in 2020. Our CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy is tracking it all. Okay, if you weren't watching all this yesterday, this is quite the scene in that courtroom. I mean, Which I was, you were watching all of it. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, you were watching it. If you were watching and seeing you know, what was coming out of this, what are the biggest takeaways?
12: I think the big takeaway is how the judge is reacting to some of the arguments being put forth by both parties in right this case. On. Because we knew the arguments that Fox was going to make. We knew the arguments that Dominion was going to make. They've made them in legal filings over the past several weeks and several months. What we didn't really have an idea of is how they were going to hold up in court when the judge is looking at them and asking questions. And what we saw yesterday was the judge was quite critical at times of Fox's arguments. At one point, he even said, you know, I think the argument you're making is it feels intellectually dishonest. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is, is really interesting as we take a look at this case. And as this judge is being asked to rule in favor by, you know, Fox is saying you should declare us the winner. Dominion is saying you should declare us the winner. This might give us some window into his thinking as he's being uh, asked by both parties uh, to just avert a trial and, and declare an outright winner.
1: We should say what some of what the judge said. This is just one quote, but there were some others that were scathing. And even the questions about, well, wait a minute, it doesn't seem like you're operating um, in good faith here. But he said it could have been a bigger story that a president who lost an election was making all these unsubstantiated false allegations. So what is he doing here to the, the Fox lawyers.
12: Well, it's certainly not good for the Fox lawyers, right? I mean, the Fox lawyers are not necessarily or yesterday on the friendliest turf. Now, that's not to say that some of their arguments won't hold up. I mean, it's not uh, unheard of for a judge to question both sides so he really can kind of interrogate the legal theories uh, in court. But it's, it's not great news for Fox as they're trying to advance these arguments. And I think the judge is kind of like all of us, like, wait a second, it was a much bigger story that Trump was lying right. in the aftermath of the election. Not necessarily, it's strange then to, to embrace those lies versus calling them out if you're a news organization. Yeah,
1: that doesn't fit the narrative, though. Right.
12: Huh?
2: We'll see what happens on day two. Oliver, thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Oliver.
2: All right, we also have more this morning on our breaking news. A residential building in Zaporizhia was hit by a missile. It's killed at least one poor person. We know that dozens more have been hospitalized, including children.
0: Also this morning, could Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg hold back and not charge former President Trump? Our next guest thinks that is the case. And Jones is here.
1: Man, why are you always starting stuff, man? <laughs>
0: <laughs> more CNN this morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, really significant new details on how President Trump and his advisors are preparing for a possible indictment from Manhattan's district attorney's office, investigating the Stormy Daniels hush money scheme. This morning, our Kristen Holmes is reporting that Trump is both celebrating and complaining. Sources say he's saying how, quote, unfair an indictment would be, also weighing how it might help him politically. Also, this reporting from The New York Times, Maggie Haberman, that, quote, Trump is ready for his perp walk. She and Michael Bender write, quote, behind closed doors at Mar-a-Lago, the former president has told friends and associates that he welcomes the idea of being paraded by the authorities before a throng of reporters and news cameras. He's even mused openly about whether he should smile for the assembled media, and he's pondered how the public would react and is said to have described the potential spectacle as a fun experience, close quote. She also writes, he wants to be defiant to show the world that if they can try to do this to him, they can do it to anyone, our next guest, not so sure an indictment, is going to happen very soon. He thinks the Manhattan district attorney, Alvin Bragg could hold back on charging Trump. Let's talk about that and a whole lot more. You're with us, CNN political commentator and former special advisor to President Obama. Van Jones, good morning. Why are
1: you stirring up a hornet's nest? Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're not
23: wrong, because we don't know, but still, I, you know. I, I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, uh, you have this sound across the country, a clack, 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 clack of Democrats' knees knocking together, afraid that the political ramifications of this is to make Trump, who seems to be on the decline, into a martyr and resurrect his political career over, but not the strongest they just, in our legal system. I, well, you're you're a purist. So You actually believe in all this stuff. I'm a political <laughs> hack, dude. I'm just telling you that politics of Don's it, sometimes right. matters. But sometimes the, it matters. Don's
0: right that shouldn't factor in a legal <laughs> yes. decision. But to you, I just want to be clear to viewers what you're saying. Yes. Are you saying that you think Alan Bragg might not charge because of what Trump is doing?
23: I'm saying no. I'm not saying that. Okay, no, good. That, that, that would make me sound like I'm. He's like a he's a corrupt political hack. Right. What I'm saying is that. Uh, this is going to be, I think, a tough decision because unless the grand jury is just overwhelming. Right. If there's any breaks or cracks within in the grand jury, you add to that just a psychological reality that a lot of Democrats think, would you let Georgia go first? Could you put, get Trump in trouble for the coup? Do we have to start with porn star payouts? That's just a political reality. And he is, at the end of the day, trying to figure out the right thing to do. And he, has, and, and he has not, as best we can tell, made the decision. But we don't know yet. We don't know. We don't know. No, we don't know. There's we're, going
1: we're...
2: to be a decision. We don't know. Everyone wants to know, yes. but the reporting does indicate that it's coming. I mean, Trump yeah. is preparing for it, like yeah. it's happening. And, and they're even thinking through, Maggie's reporting is right, obviously, that uh, they are thinking through what that would look like. That mm-hmm. walk, you know, past the reporters once someone has been mm-hmm. indicted and how they could use that, to your point, mm-hmm about making him a martyr, how they could use that, you know, in campaign footage and what that Look,
23: looks like. Trump is going to come down there like it's a Soul Train line. Now, he's going to be so happy to get the attention.
2: But will to, they actually be happy? I mean, people will have been I, indicted still.
23: The thing about Trump... He loves attention. He loves attention. The spectacle. Whether it's bad or good. Everything that happens for Trump is, is both bad and good. It's, 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 it's kind of... That means it's Tuesday, it's Wednesday. Whatever he does, some people hate it, some people love it. But he's going to be the center of the world attention. Whatever he says that day, seven billion people will hear it and he will turn it to his advantage as he always does.
19: Can I push
2: back on that just a yes. little bit in another lens of how to view this? I, I do think, obviously, all oh, that's right, I covered Trump when he was president. <clears throat> the other part of this, though, is that it's about Stormy Daniels. And that is one of the most politically or personally yeah. sensitive things for Trump, especially with the first lady, former First Lady Melania Trump. When this happened in the White House, it was one of the biggest sources of tension mm-hmm. between the two of them. So I actually think... Yes, all of that could be right of the political aspect of this, but it is not, you know, uh, some great story that he that uh, they like uh, having resurrected.
1: It oh. has been said that's the reason he wanted
23: to do this is to because of Melania, right? right so, it, so that so, so listen, nobody wants to be indicted, but I'm going to tell you what: if you're Donald Trump, the personal stuff, you're correct. But would you rather be indicted about a porn star payout a long time ago or for the insurrection, a coup, and trying to steal an election? Look, if, if you have Republicans watching and they think there's some sophisticated conspiracy by progressives to take over. You can relax now because if this, this is not well-coordinated. A well-coordinated progressive conspiracy would not start with the, with the porn star. It would start with a coup. And so I just think that at the end of the day, uh, this, he hasn't made a decision yet, and we don't know.
0: Could we, just before we go, yes. talk about uh, Ron DeSantis and this new interview that he gave to Piers Morgan? I just want people to see a clip of it quick. Yeah, good, good.
3: Um, what is your favorite nickname that Trump's given you so far? Is it Ron De Sanctimonious or Meatball Ron? <laughs>
20: well, I can't. Uh, I think even he went off Meatball Ron. I, but. I, I can't. Uh, I don't know how to spell De Sanctimonious. I don't really know what it means, but I, you know, I kind of like it's long. It's got a lot of vowels. I mean, so we go with that. That's fine. You know, you can call me you can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you, you know, also call me a winner.
0: No lack of confidence there from DeSantis, who also says, by the way, I wouldn't be running against Trump. I'd be running against Biden. You think DeSantis needs to, in your words, eat his Wheaties?
23: He's going to have to eat his Wheaties. He's going to have to get ready. Look, it's, I think it's great. He's showing confidence. He's, he's growing. He's, he's, he's showing a little bit of charisma. But you're dealing with Donald Trump. Donald Trump has not lost anything when it comes to the Republican Party. His, his approval rating is high. There's not one state where uh, DeSantis is beating Trump yet. So he's gonna, he can talk, talk all he wants to. He can smile talk to an interviewer. When you're face-to-face with Donald Trump, it's a different story, buddy. Eat it's, your Wheaties. It's early on, it's Mr. Early political on. Hack. You called yourself.
1: I'm not <laughs> saying that.
23: It's
16: Don't early on. Don't call my That's buddy it. Van just that.
13: Said I just said it know. like two minutes ago.
23: That, <laughs> oh, I was like, compared to you, yeah. you're a purist. You believe this stuff. I'm just telling you from the political point of view how it is.
1: By the way, quickly before you let you go, on the spectacle part, as you know, the reporting is that they would prefer... Right. The authorities. Right. And to, for security reasons, not to have a spectacle to have him going through underground sure. and have all of this done without the cameras. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it's up to Trump, because if he had his druthers, he might hey,
23: look, look if, you, it if, you're gonna, if you're going to do it, you may as well get the attention. He might yeah. moonwalk. At the park walk. <laughs> I'm telling you, you guys, I, I don't think he's going oh to be boy. sad about this. I think he's got a boom walk. It's time yeah. for you to go, Van. <laughs> well,
2: we'll wait to see. It is good for it to have a word of caution. We have to wait for the actual yeah. environment. Right, like to see. We haven't seen it yet, so yeah. it's a very good word of caution. Thank you it for joining good
18: us. To you, man, good to see
1: you, to see you,
2: thanks. All right, we have more this morning on breaking news. This is in Ukraine, an incredibly important – you see this video, a dramatic video. That is where a missile struck a residential block in Zaporizhia. You see all the cars just right in front of that. We're going to talk about that and what could come. As an outcome of this meeting, this three-day meeting between Xi and Putin, former Defense Secretary Mark Esper is going to join us live. That's next. We're following breaking news this morning out of Ukraine. You see the map there. This is search and rescue operations are underway here in Zaporizhia after two Russian missiles hit a residential building, the one that you see here. This is a high rise. That is according to Ukrainian officials, and the mayor says one person has been killed Dozens more injured, including children. The video shows the immediate aftermath from the inside after that missile hit. This attack comes one day after that high-stakes summit between Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping in Moscow has now come to an end. You see Xi Jinping leaving, returning to China now. Putin says that China's so-called peace plan could be the basis for a deal in Ukraine. The White House is pushing back, though, saying if Beijing truly wanted to broker peace, it should tell Russia to leave.
11: If President Xi really believes that stuff they just put out in Moscow, then you ought to be telling President Putin to get his troops out of Ukraine because they're the ones violating the U.N. charter. They're the ones violating sovereignty and territorial integrity. And this war could be over right now.
2: Joining us now for more perspective on this is the former Defense Secretary Mark Esper. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I know you are coming live from Lithuania, obviously, an important backdrop in this entire conversation. Let's start, though, with the end of that summit between President Putin and President Xi and what it says to you about Russia's level of reliance on China right now
11: yes caitlin great to be with you and as you said i I am in lithuania i'm uh, keynoting a baltic military conference and also meeting with the nation's leaders and this is a great country that's meeting its nato commitments and punching well above its weight when it comes to helping out the ukrainians and look they were under soviet rule not uh, not a little bit more than 30 years ago so they see this all very clearly and uh, people here in lithuania are watching the events on the ground and they see this uh this uh, meeting between uh, Xi Jinping and uh, and Russian President Vladimir Putin with great concern, alarm as to what it may portend.
2: Yeah, and we didn't see any reference to military assistance, at least not publicly, between Putin and President Xi, uh, but if China does decide to provide weapons to Russia to use in Ukraine, what should the U.S. response look like in your view?
11: Well, first, we, China is providing Russia assistance in, in the sense that it's buying its energy off the markets, it's mm-hmm. providing technical assistance, dual use items. And there have been some reports that Chinese munitions have been found in Ukraine, which is very interesting. But look, if China was to provide lethal assistance, I think one, it would change the game with regard to Russia's ability to sustain this conflict because Russia is running out of men, uh, material and munitions and, and Chinese assistance could help. That said, if they did, It would strategically, I think, change the game between the United States and hopefully our European partners, which is one of the issues I'm talking about here with regard to our willingness collectively to sanction China financially, economically and otherwise for, for, for making such a move.
2: Okay. And that is something that the White House has said there would be consequences. They haven't said exactly what. The Pentagon, though, Mark, is now saying that those Abrams tanks that they are sending to Ukraine, they weren't really expected to even potentially reach there this year. They're now saying they'll arrive by the fall because they're sending a refurbished older model, basically allowing them to speed up the timeline. Does this make it clear to you that the Pentagon should have decided to send the Abrams tanks sooner to Ukraine?
11: Absolutely. I mean, I thought we should have been making that decision last year, late last year when when uh, Ukraine began asking. And then when the decision finally came out, which was a way to unleash the Germans in terms of providing the leopards uh we we made this decision that we would provide them uh you know, you know tanks coming off the line sometime next year that didn't make much sense given what's happening now in ukraine so i think providing them either current models or you know the marine corps has turned in its tanks i think we can we should be able to get them uh, abram's tanks within a matter of weeks i think what is happening is this caitlin uh the ukraines are trying to assemble a counteroffensive uh that would happen sometime in april or may which is just a few weeks away and to do so they need that heavy armor uh, accompanied by fighting vehicles to really punch through the these uh, Russian lines and, and push the Russians out of eastern Ukraine. Uh, that'll be a big game changer and important to do before the NATO summit in Vilnius in July here in Europe.
2: Yeah, and I know you've also said you believe the U.S. should send the F-16 fighter jets. We'll see what happens there. Mark, I do want to ask you about a pol- some political news and some legal news here, since you did work for former President Trump as his defense secretary. He has this history as a politician of Typically, a traditional scandal that would bring any other politician down uh, doesn't really hurt Trump. There's this idea that maybe an indictment here in New York could be an asset to him. How do you see it?
11: You know, Caitlin, I'd like to answer your question, but I've been on planes for the last 24 hours and not focused on that news. I I haven't really seen what has developed. Uh, People here are really focused in terms of how the United States and whether the United States will continue to support Ukraine. That's the biggest concern when people look back at the United States right now.
2: Do they have any concerns if Trump is the GOP nominee of what that uh, support from the U.S. would look like, given he's been skeptical of it? So has Ron DeSantis.
11: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is concern that there may be this isolationist pull. And and we've heard the comments recently by uh, Governor DeSantis uh, about this being a territorial dispute, which it's not. Uh, In my view, I think the view of other Republicans, uh, traditional Republicans, is that this is a contest between democracy and autocracy. And it's certainly in the United States national interest to uh, support the Ukrainians. And that needs to be that needs to continue. Uh, That's the concern, I think, of, of folks over here in Europe.
2: All right. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper live from Lithuania. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us this morning.
11: Thanks, Caitlin.
1: Also happening today, the Federal Reserve is set to announce its decision on interest rates as the country continues to grapple with sky-high inflation. Rising prices have pushed many consumers to abandon premium goods in exchange for cheaper alternatives in everything from groceries to clothing to personal care products. So for more on this, it's bringing now and reporter Matt Egan. Matt, hello to you. What is this shift away from premium products? What does it actually look like?
10: Well, Don, um, you know, I think Americans have just really changed the way that they shop. Um, you know, people are trading down. That means going to cheaper brands, cheaper products uh, for groceries. Maybe that means getting regular fruit and vegetables instead of organic. Uh, For electronics, that could mean getting the TV that has the best deal instead of the one that has all the best features. And, you know, we've heard about this trend anecdotally, but these new numbers from um, Adobe shared first with CNN really put an exclamation point on how this is playing out online where it's actually easiest to price shop. So Adobe found that across all 11 e-commerce categories, um, the lowest Priced goods are gaining market share and the highest priced ones are losing. So, for example, let's look at groceries. In early 2019, the lowest priced uh, tier of groceries had about a third of the market. But look at that. Today, now half of the market. Same things playing out. Uh, For personal care products like shampoo and perfume and cologne, Um, in 2019, the lowest price goods had about a quarter of the market for personal care products. Now, it's about 50% of the market, uh, so it's doubled. Clearly, uh, these trends show that because of high inflation, you know, Americans have just become a lot more price conscious. All right,
1: Matt Egan, thank you, sir. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Matt. President Biden awarding artists, creators, philanthropists with one of the nation's highest honors. Guess who we get to be joined by? (laughs) I'm so excited. The iconic Vera Wang is here.
1: I love the medal too. Look at the Look at the medal. Hi, Vera. Can't wait to see you. We'll talk to you after the break. And something that I have just for you, I've conjured this up. I did it myself. (laughs) <laughs> see what I prepared? A live look at the cherry blossoms Aww. in Washington, D.C. Caitlin's going I'm going
2: to tell you, they bloom, and then, like, snow hits I... in April, and you're like, no!
18: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
19: oh! Every time I open the closet, I see her when I got introduced to Vera. <laughs> and, G- and Jill turned to me and said, what do you say that for? <laughs> All those labels. Vera Wang. I guess I, I could have said it a little better. When I open the closet, and I see you all the time. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a moment. President Biden honoring fashion
1: designer and icon Vera Wang with the 2021 National Medal of the Arts. It's one of the nation's highest honors. She uh, joined a, a select group of creators, advocates, and writers to receive this award, including Bruce Springsteen, Julie Lee Dreyfus, and Gladys Knight. I mean, this was the first time since taking office that President Biden held this event due to COVID-19, right, and the restrictions there. So joining us now, ba fashion designer, recipient of the National Medal of Arts, all-around hero, my friend, Vera Wang, our friend. Vera, good morning to you, congratulations.
25: Thank you so much. I'm flying on air. Um, it's kind of surreal, I have to say. But here it is, my Olympic gold.
1: <laughs> I was, was going to say it looks like an Olympic gold medal. But as you know, Poppy and I were talking. We were saying in the break as we were talking to you, Poppy said uh, th- they're both important.
0: But this is this, about a lifetime of yes. work, not just one huge win. This is about your body of work. Yes.
25: Yes a long body of work <laughs> definitely but I have to say that um, I was really moved I mean you never really think how you'll react but when I walked into that room um, it was really quite emotional for me because also something I totally did not anticipate I mean in a million years so this was Aww. you know really an out-of-body
2: experience Aww.
1: yeah you had no idea like oh mm-hmm. I see
2: a dress of mine. <laughs>
18: <laughs> yes,
2: your stuff is so beautiful. It's just—it's like timeless. And I mean, what he was saying there about walking into the First Lady's closet and seeing your your designs everywhere—I I wonder what it's like to even hear something like that—that that the First Lady's closet in the White House is full of of your work and things mm-hmm. that you've created.
25: Well, I like to think, guys, Poppy, Caitlin, everyone else, Don, I have to say that um, it's such an honor to craft clothing, but to see it really worn and enjoyed and experienced by someone like the First Lady, I don't think it really gets better for any designer, Mm -hmm. tell you the truth. Yeah.
0: You know, I, I,
25: um, I mean, go ahead. No, I just think that, um, for something so unexpected, I was unbelievably moved. So, you know, I'm just happy as can be today. We're playing celebratory.
1: We're showing video of some of your dresses. I mean, truly, are unreal.
25: Stuff, on,
0: yeah, I mean, I'll never forget you. the experience of walking into your boutique like ten years ago and getting to yes. try on your gowns. It's a once in a lifetime experience. Look, um, I love that you have said. If anyone had said I'd be the girl who didn't get married until she was forty and would build a business based on wedding gowns, I would have laughed. Look how much you have done since this moment in your life when you thought, and you've said, well, maybe it was too late.
25: Guys, is forty that old? No. he says that to me. God, you didn't get started till you were forty, and I'm thinking, well, I don't know if I could have done it at thirty-five. I was too crazy.
5: I mean, I'm just saying honestly,
25: forty doesn't seem forty doesn't seem that old to me, particularly now. And I have to say that um, there's something about a certain maturity that comes, you know, that comes with age and experience, but I. See Certainly had two major careers before, both at Vogue magazine, yeah, and then obviously um, as a as a design director for Ralph Lauren's company. So both of those things really helped me establish, you know, a resume, not only a resume, but such an incredible education experience. So I don't know, is forty that old? No, but <laughs> I le- guess it is. It's, no, not, it's not, not. But it's absolutely me, not. Let me ask
1: you uh, about. Um, we were just talking about, you know, people looking for cheaper products, but there's also Luxury goods are are really soaring right now. Aspirational, I think probably coming out of COVID is helping as well. That people want to be aspirational. Do you think that uh, it has changed now that, that you know, considering what happened after COVID, that people are you know foregoing their dream wedding, um, weddings now? Are you seeing that, or are people still leaning into the big wedding dress, the expensive stuff?
25: You know. I think, frankly, before the pandemic, um, there was a new trend that young couples wanted to not spend quite as much on the sartorial, the clothing part of the wedding. It's more interest in travel and experience. But I think since the pandemic and everyone was locked up there's been this wedding resurgence it's been really kind of insane and i think the desire to celebrate with people you love and you know just really experience the full wedding moment has really um galvanized and changed pretty much our business for now i have to be honest i did 38 personal vip weddings myself last year and wow that's even a record for me wow yeah yeah Oh.
1: Well, listen. You do beautiful so. stuff, but the best accessory I think today is that huge mm-hmm. metal hanging around your neck.
25: I love it so much. I can't even tell you. I could never have expected this in a million years. So,
2: well, well deserved. And thank, thank you, you guys. Yeah, thank you, Vera. Thank you for joining
25: thank us. You. For
1: such we'll a see gem. you soon in New York. Dinner, all four of us. Thank How you. lovely is
25: yes, she? Absolutely, all four. All right. Oh, love, I love you. That. Bye. You Bye. too.
0: Okay, moving on. When was the last time you played a CD? For our younger audience, have you ever seen a CD? <laughs>
1: DVD is
0: throwing things back with this morning's number.
19: you still get the DVDs from the Academy? The
12: discs retail for under $20. The players cost from $300 to more than $1,000. Most can be programmed to give the listener control over the order of selections. A portable version is on the way, as is a version for your car.
1: Oh my gosh! A
0: trip back in time to the dawning of a new technology that redefined how we listen to music and made us throw out our cassette tapes or keep them if you're done. Let's bring in <laughs> CNN senior data reporter Harry, and he told me
2: he still has eight tracks. Oh my
1: gosh! I do have an eight-track make... player of an old car, but uh, Tim did
2: tell me that you keep a lot of stuff. You're
1: I a whore. Yeah, a I'm drawer a full of, of a phones. Nostalgia, nostalgic. Um... <laughs> I I'm triggered because do you remember opening those darn things? You could you like rip your fingers off. You the can CDs? never open the CDs. Yeah. Oh yeah, the,
13: the wrapping tape around the, it. Well, right. not even that.
1: The things that they were secure
13: at the counter. You're like, Are you, I
2: don't it get it off.
13: I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> the yes. anti-theft stuff. Is yes. Tell,
2: Tell us what you're talking
13: thing. about. <laughs> what, what am I talking about? Okay, this morning's number is. 40. Why? Because compact disc sales for music started 40 years ago this month in the United States. I can't believe it was that long ago. And there truly has been a rise and then a fall of compact disc sales. So compact disc percentage of all U.S. music sales back in 1983 when it was started was just 1%. Look, it jumped to 65% in 1993, 95% in 2003, dropped to 30% in 2013, 3% in 2022. And look at where we are now. Streaming is the number one way. It's 78% of all of the way that music was sold. Digital download in 2013 at 40%. You have to go all the way back to 2003 when it was compact disc. And, of course, vinyl of all types... Was the tops back in 1983 when compact discs started.
19: But
2: Harry, we've also seen this, and this is something happening among my friends as well, is a resurgence in vinyl. Everyone is getting vinyl records again and record players, because people do have this. We sense have of them, we love it. I Nostalgia. It, it, yeah. And the sound is the different. The sound
13: is great and warm and look at this. Vinyl, EPs and LPs. Eight percent of sales of music this past year. Compact disc just three percent. We've seen this rise of vinyl, and I have Uncle Neil right here vinyl and I'll note the sound is not actually better on vinyl than compact disc but the album cover art is, I think it is. for nostalgia I guess you the know what
1: is, how I want... old are you no it's, it's, <laughs> it's the sound better. is the it's the
13: record player it's it's better.
1: just warmer and it's yeah. not so perfect right I, it's a mood
0: I couldn't find the Taylor Swift um vinyl, vinyl. you know midnight was it They're midnight hard to buy. Yeah, so I'd like you to get me one this weekend thank you very much
7: we got to put the
1: needle on the record <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
2: you, Harry. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Oh my gosh,
1: I feel so old. I remember my first CD player.
2: It's okay. okay we got you.
1: Eighty-three. Newsroom starts after the break. Don't
0: tell That is it for this episode of CNN this morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com/audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.